0: Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippey. Transcripts
1: can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have.
2: What is up on a Monday? I am Brian Scott Rippy, Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast. Got a little two-for action for you today. Weldon Rodenberg stopped by for a little bit to talk some bi-week stuff, some storylines, Lane Kiffin. Uh, Auburn, that type of stuff, as well as what happened over the weekend. He was at Alabama LSU, so shared some insight there. And then we've got Bracken Ray, former Andy Kennedy staffer, to preview this basketball team that tips off its season on Monday night at 8 p.m. So lots of good stuff in this one. Buckle up should be a good one. Before we get to that, though, I want to remind you, the podcast is brought to you by Ray Stevens of Square Real Estate. Ray is a licensed real estate agent in the Oxford area Whether you are looking to buy or sell a home, he can help remove the hassle from that process. He takes pride in providing individualized service to each one of his clients and finding homes that people would cherish. He's going to listen to your needs. He's going to set you up with some options to find the best fit for you, whether that's a two-bedroom condo or a five-bedroom dream house. Whatever it is, Ray Stevens can definitely help you out with that. Just give him a call at 601-624-4877. Fort, tell him i sent you he'll get you hooked up uh, no never a, a better time to buy an oxford the football team's good maybe you're tired of staying on other people's couches uh each weekend or uh having to ask for a place to stay or p- paying for overpriced hotel room just go ahead and get your condo for the weekend and boom you're set up for football basketball and baseball nice little second getaway for you ray stevens can help you find that maybe you're looking to sell yours and up an ups upsize or downsize he can help you with that as well Whatever your needs are, check them out. Ray Stevens of Square Real Estate. That's at 601-624-4824. Give him a call and broker number 662-832-7777. Check them out. Podcast is also brought to you by Skybox Sports Fix. Who is Skybox Sports Fix? Well, glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website, the inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval and Advanced Modeling Mechanism that has helped propel Skybox, to the top of the sports handicapping industry. Skybox is on fire in the NFL right now, heading into last week. Don't have this week's numbers yet. They are 20 and 9 in their last uh, 29 NFL plays. You probably haven't gone 20 and 9. Stop paying your bookie each week. Sign up for Skybox. Go to sportspicks.com Find a picks package, whether you, you can try it for a month, a day, a week. I'd recommend just going with the year long all sports access pass, and boom, you're all of a sudden much better suited to profit. Than you were five minutes before. They're going to send you the picks package in a nice little spreadsheet, color coded, different units on there, very well organized. And boom, you have a better strategy to kind of go up against the boys in the desert. There, check them out, SkyboxSportsPicks.com. Use the promo code Rippy R I P P E E. That'll get you twenty percent off. All right, here is Weldon Rodenberg. All right, we now welcome on Rippy Wright's football correspondent, former Ole Miss recruiting staffer, Weldon Rodenberg. He was on site at the uh, epicenter of college football this weekend. It might not have been the epicenter of college football that you thought of, right? Georgia, Tennessee. But uh, in terms of games of the weekend and what happened, you were down there in Death Valley for Alabama LSU. There's really no other place to start. How was the weekend? I bet that had to be pretty enthralling, even though you're an undercover spy that had to just had uh, <laughs> just used to the uh, old fuel of the fire. How was it?
1: No, I mean, it was awesome. We were, we really went, um, I have a good friend who had an engagement party Friday night. So we, we, he had planned to have that party Friday night. Cause he knew a lot of people would be coming in town for the Bama game, which was smart. Um, and I mean, it was an awesome weekend. It always is. I mean, tailgating was great. Um, kind of, kind of interesting. It, honestly, the tailgating was not as crowded as like the Ole Miss game was a few weeks ago, but uh, Saturday night in Death Valley, it's it simply is different. There's a reason why they try as hard as they can uh, lobbying to get those games at night. Uh, stadium was packed, atmosphere was pretty incredible, uh, and really just an amazing game. Like we were saying uh, before we started, I, I've been to you know growing up so many pretty incredible games that was absolutely up there with one of the uh, one of the all timers. LSU wins or losses disregarded. I mean, it was just it was big time.
2: Yeah, it was one of those things, and we were talking about this before we started recording. So, like, the nighttime cap, I had two TVs on, and because of what I thought Mississippi State was about to do with the whole Carnell Williams-Auburn thing, I thought it would actually kind of be funnier and a little more significant if they lost. So I kind of dedicated more of the volume, I'd say, toward that game. While I had Alabama-LSU on the side, and I'm paying attention to it, but, like, I kept thinking okay, like, I Alabama scores to go up 21-17. Like, I think they got this. And then LSU answers or whatever. And I was like, then Alabama scores again. I was like, all right, they probably have this. And then it gets to overtime, and I'm sitting there thinking, all right, Alabama punches it in. They got a fortunate – uh I don't know if it was holding or pass interference call. It sets them up by the goal line. They punched it in. I was was, like, Yeah, it was the
1: controversial uh, tip or no tip play.
2: Yeah, which was absolutely tipped, by the way. I don't know if you've seen the replay since. I I don't know what was called or what they saw. That football was 1,000% tipped. And you don't see this in professional football. I guess we can start there. (laughs) If something happens in pro football and they review it, it doesn't always work out the way you think it will. But that's usually because there's, like, indisputable evidence or something. And it's like, eh, hey, I don't know. That ball was just completely tipped. Like, it, it, there's literally no – I mean, unless I'm tripping acid or something, which I didn't take anything I knew of, that ball got tipped and it just didn't get called. And I know there was the weird fumble thing. That the SEC refere- refereeing situation, bizarre, I would say. Yeah,
1: well, it's interesting. It, I personally did not think it was tipped or – it Upon did not replay? look – I mean, yeah, they had replay going, I mean, from different angles in the stadium. Now, LSU has really bad video boards, so it's kind of hard to see. But it didn't look to me that it was, like, so obviously tipped. Because, like, if you remember in 2020 when uh, Auburn touched – the guy touched the kickoff. Yeah. Oh man, if You remember – I, when I always look now, I look for the finger, not for the ball. And the Auburn guy, I mean, his pinky finger, like, went, you know, horizontal. Like, he absolutely touched that football. The LSU guy, it didn't look – like, the ball didn't really rotate differently to me. I mean, it might have been more clear on TV than it was in the stadium, but uh, I thought that would have been, like, a really harsh overturn right there and a pretty crucial point of the game. And then, you know, what's funny about that fumble rule um, is – I never really got a great explanation. You know, I'm in the crowd and we're trying to figure out what exactly the call was. Funny enough, riding on the way home in the Packers-Lions game, they had the exact yeah. same thing happen where, you know, the defender or the off- the offensive player touches the ball while his feet are out of bounds, therefore declaring the ball dead. I mean, the odds of that happening two days in a row is is crazy to me because I honestly – did not know that rule Um, in the, you know, the flow of the game. I had never heard of that. And when they were taking so long to uh, review it, I mean, it was a long review. It was like five or six minutes TV timeout and everything, you know, the crowds get a little restless and I'm like, I don't know what's about to happen, but they're about to turn this over, you know, to Alabama. And I I don't know what the rule is going to be, but they're taking way too long for this not to be the case. Um, So I, they refed a pretty good game in my opinion. I think they had two really close, really weird calls that may have made it seem a little odd, but uh, I thought officiating wise, it was pretty good.
2: Yeah. Maybe we saw it differently than I Granted, I didn't go back and look at it today. There had been a, Quite a I say quite a few maybe a one or two course lights flowing by the time that uh, the little tip pass it happened but I'm just sitting there watching on TV and I don't really have a rooting interest don't get me wrong in the back of my mind I would prefer Alabama to win to make next week's game you know more directly significant but I don't sure. really care and I'm kind of more interested in the fact it's like, is like it's Alabama really gonna crumble in this sense. I just thought with the way they showed that replay and the way the ball was like revolving before that, there seemed to be, and maybe it was slight, like a slight just change of course where it goes up and it doesn't rotate as well. And yeah. to me, in my mind, you know, a couple of beers deep, I'm like that thing that got, that got tipped. It did. Maybe it wasn't obvious as obvious yeah. in the
1: stadium, it, which is, well, not, I think uh, the whole point is that we're having this conversation. Yeah, not exactly what, what really happened. So, I mean, them changing that call would have been like, I mean, it would have made really no sense to change it.
2: Yeah. Right. And so like, maybe, maybe that was the case, but like, and then I'm sitting there thinking, okay, Alabama's – right, they got it. Are you a Shorter field, for whatever reason, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, all right, well, whatever Daniel's scrambling ability is, you don't really have to worry about getting beat deep. So I'm thinking, all right, I think Alabama finally has this thing. Boy, was I wrong. Daniel scrambled the first play he gets in. At that point, just crowd-wise, just give me kind of an inside feel of what's happening in the stadium. Did you think they were going for two? Clearly with this rigged-up overtime now that we have after two overtimes, it turns into a two-point conversion fest. I can't imagine any coach like Worth this Salt wants to be like, you know what? We're gonna kick the extra point here and go to the two-point conversion fest. Clearly, that wasn't the case. It was the first overtime, but I'm just curious, like, did people think they were going for two? What was kind of happening in the
1: stadium? Oh, I saw it immediately. I mean, when they scored the touchdown, uh Kayshawn and uh Dre Jenkins like ran onto the field. I mean, he he had it called from the second they scored the touchdown. Um, and I, I mean hindsight 2020 i I thought it was the correct call no matter what happened i think
2: i thought i think
1: that's correct too yeah i know people everyone has their very old school thought process about going for two to win the game there's some people say you do it only when you're the underdog there's some people who say you only do it on the road um but brian kelly's explanation explanation at the uh, after the game made perfect sense he's like you look we had a play we had not run all year, so they were not going to see it. We wanted to end this game with the ball in our hands, with all of control of what was going to happen. Uh, we really liked our play; Uh we really thought it was going to work. We were going to run it no matter what. It, that, that was what we were going to do in that in that position. You know, I guess they had talked about you know in some sort of situational deal that, that this was the their this was their two point play. If the opportunity came to run it, they were going to run it and. Uh, Somebody did some really really good football research and I don't know if you remember this game but uh Everett Golson and Notre Dame playing Florida State probably I think in 2015 in a uh in a classic uh Brian Kelly and Notre Dame run this exact play and it gets called for a pick. Whoa! If you remember this. I don't okay. know yeah, and uh, gets overturned after they score, and then they don't get it, and they end up losing to – I believe that was Jameis Winston's second year at Florida State. I could be wrong. It could have been a year after that. Uh, exact same play. That it makes sense. Also,
2: Baker playoff, remember they get killed. That makes sense, yeah.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, he he had confidence in this one. I think someone said, like, you know, he was pretty confident they were, weren't going to call a pick. I think they – kind of, you know, switched a little formationally to make sure it was like way less obvious and way more behind the the line of scrimmage when they threw the ball and everything. So, I mean, perfect play, perfect timing. I mean, overall, a pretty master class coaching effort by Kelly and LSU. I mean, Bama has been a bad team on the road. I don't think that they played awful in this game by any means um Bryce Young does what he always does which is just make play after play after play in the second half of football games uh LSU simply won I mean they were game from the beginning I mean you they came out kicked a field goal go up 3-0 then when Bryce Young similar to kind of old Miss when he throws that interception in the end zone it's like okay like the, the, we're on here like the, this is going to be a game no matter what and I mean Back and forth towards the end. And I really do think the better team that night won the game for sure.
2: Well, yeah, and that that to 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 speak to the two-point conversion part of it too is like I didn't see Kelly's explanation, but you think about it. LSU, if they kick the extra point, you're about to ask your offense, is like, all right, that was sweet, but maybe go do that again. Like, not maybe, right. you're gonna have to go do that again. And you know, when you have a player like Bryce Young for Alabama on the other side of the football, who kind of just willed his team to victory. Um, I say victory willed his team into that game and kept making plays after plays to set them up with the chance to win the football game. You're just playing with fire. So I agree to wholeheartedly again, hindsight is 2020. I don't think my, uh, my thinking would have been any different had they not gotten it, but it's like, I don't want to see that guy touch the, the football again, particularly not when it turns into a two point contest. Should we let up another touchdown? And so you know, after that, you have the Daniel scramble, like, can you ask your offense to go do that again? My answer would be no. And so I thought that was the right decision. And then on top of that, too, like to speak to the larger fact of this game and what it means for the SEC and all of that, I think you're right. I think the better team that night won the game. I mean, I think one of the stupidest lines I've written this year, and I don't think it was necessarily stupid at the time, was like, oh Miss is a better football team than LSU is. I don't know if that's the case. I would actually say that's probably not the case now.
1: I would say it's their, not the case.
2: Yeah, yeah. They, I mean, he has those guys playing very good. And it's crazy in this, like, modern college football age where you see LSU versus Florida State, and you're like, my God, are these guys going to win five games? Like, what the hell is up with this? And then five yeah. weeks later, it's like, wow, this team has it really going on. And I, I guess to formulate that into a question, to speak in the Alabama aspect of it, Bryce Young made a ton of plays. And to – what makes this Alabama team different is there is no like on third and 12 where you're like, all right, you finally got them in a good spot. Oh shit. Like Judy Waddle, someone's going to get loose. Not only going to give up the third and 12, you don't feel great about that. You're going to give up 35 yards. There's none of that. Every time LSU got into a third and long, I was like, wow, they stopped them. Like they're going to do this. And as Bryce Young did as much as he could, but that, that to me boils down this Alabama team. They don't have the playmakers to do what they've done the last four years.
1: No, I mean their offense. I mean, anemic might be a little hyperbolic, but they it's they are high. incredibly yeah. uh, average. That, that's not the best word to use, of course, but they are they are very average. I mean, they have a Ferrari and a running back, and they just can't run the ball. I mean, they just did not run the ball at all um, last night. The they had only real passing success was him and uh, McClellan and like an angle route out of the backfield and that that killed LSU a few times until they finally adjusted to it uh the receivers man they're just so not scary I mean they, they do not they did not scare LSU's DBs who like I mean they're pretty good they're not you know incredible DBs but Alabama's receivers just were completely ineffective and then uh, I mean, Bryce had to literally survive seven sacks to kind of get that offense going and make that incredible play down the sideline. Uh, they're just not creative. I, they don't get Gibbs the ball in advantageous situations. That'd be I run
2: my offense through. It's like that—that that surprises me week after week.
1: It's just bizarre, and maybe it's a Gibbs thing where he he can't have that many touches because he's you know whether he's injured or this is not the kind of back he is, but. Every time he was in open space, he was making guys look silly. And they just didn't give him that many opportunities to do so. Um, the offensive line is not dominant. Uh, I think LSU is a really good defensive line. And then we'll talk about 40 here in a second. Um, but, I mean, they just – I mean, they lost. They had another game where they just didn't play up to Bama standard on the road. This is maybe five in a row that comes to mind. I mean – they just have not been a good team on the road. They they tried to close them out. They couldn't do it. LSU, I mean, just freaking down their throats to go up again by three. And honestly, they were lucky to even get the field goal. It looked like it was shanked from my point of view. And, then of course, it, like, kind of dribbled in. Um, but I think LSU's decision to go for two was finally that that offense was rolling towards the end of that game. LSU's defense was getting tired. I mean, they scored the touchdown to go up four. They drive back down the field again to tie it. And then in the overtime, they drive back down, you know, it's 25 yards. But they drove with semi-ease despite that play and to score again. I mean, it, you knew what was coming if they didn't score. you didn't score a touchdown in that second overtime. So, I think situationally it all made sense. But Bama, I mean, well, they're done. I mean, that, that's their season um, in a nutshell. So, I'll be looking forward to fade them in whatever BCS bowl or <laughs> access bowl they end up in. but they're they're done
2: and to speak to a recruiting piece of it is as someone i saw on twitter who i don't necessarily love but made a decent point i'd say (laughs) regarding the alabama thing and regarding the receivers and it's like it's one thing to continue to stack on four and five star receivers but alabama had this run where they turned into you know um calvin ridley um uh, Jerry Judy, uh, G- Smith.
1: Devontae Smith, Waddle, Jay I mean, Waddle. all of these guys.
2: And it's one thing to have guys like that, but to continue to expect them to be what those guys became in that short amount of time, I say re- unrealistic. I don't know if that's the right way to describe it, but that seems like what the hiccup is with this Alabama offense. You mentioned the fact that they've gotten uncreative. There's probably a piece of Bill O'Brien. I know he hasn't been there that long. It's like, well, we got playmakers down the field. It's like, well, actually do you? like you know what I mean there's I
1: mean they, they had to portal for two guys who have been complete non-factors in Burton and uh the other kid Harold, I think is his name from Louisville. I mean he hadn't even played and then Burton is a complete zero out there. he he was a pretty good receiver for Georgia. Nothing on this team, uh, and you think I mean, about the receiver... last year that somewhat delayed this is Jamison Williams, who was
2: awesome. Like, right? Oh like, yeah, forgot
1: or... about his ass. I mean, Henry Ruggs, too. I mean, they they had an incredible run of receivers. Um, so you kind of you know expect to continue that can to continue, and uh, it has not. I mean, in college football these days, uh, Old Miss being the bizarre exception. I mean, if you don't have elite wide receivers, you're not going to be an elite football team. Um, And that's kind of just begun to show up week after week with Alabama this year. I think it was something that we just assumed that these young guys they had would just step up and be studs, which I think is a fair assumption considering the context of what that program has been over the last four or five years of that position. They have not been. It has stifled them dramatically.
2: It really has, and that I think that was on display, and you could kind of see the tea leaves of that kind of tinkering and tinker. I like kind of, you know, okay, maybe here's a hint, here's a hint, here's a hint. And then it finally kind of came up to bite them again. And so OSU wins this football game, and it's a down to, to spin this into an old miss perspective. That's actually a huge downer for Ole Miss. That was a huge, huge loss for the Ole Miss Rebels on Saturday night because look, they kept playing the graphics on television. I'm not the biggest math numbers nerd guy. But basically, if had Alabama won, they had like an eighty-six percent chance to win the West, right? Beat Ole Miss, you get it. They're gonna win the West. LSU now, it's like eighty-four percent, because all they have to do is beat Arkansas and beat the corpse of Texas AM, and they're going to win the SEC West. And like yep. you know, Ole Miss has the loss and they feel like they're in pretty good position. And now an LSU team that I don't think anybody expected to beat Alabama, right? I mean, that line's thirteen and a half all the way till closing kickoff pulls this off. I guess to start, we'll spin it this way. Do you think LSU wins the West? Do you think they get through uh, Arkansas and AM? My my I'll, I'll, I'll lead it off. My short answer is I think so, but I wouldn't discount them going to Fayetteville.
1: I think they do. Um, I will say the opening line for LSU-Arkansas is LSU minus three and a half.
2: That is sneaky. Uh,
1: which is sneaky, disgusting. Uh, as we talked about Georgia and Tennessee, which – you know, ended up in the way that I thought it was going to. Um, I I mean, I think they do. I I think it is incredibly difficult to win on the road in the SEC. I think LSU this year uh, has been, with the exception, I don't even counting Florida anymore because that's a bad football team, but they have not looked great on the road. I mean, they gave up a ton of points to Florida, who is not a good football team. Uh, They scored two defensive touchdowns to beat a terrible Auburn team on the road. Uh, And then was there one more? I mean, you can call the Florida State game a road game. It's a really just a home neutral game. And uh, that was not an impressive performance. Uh, So it's it's incredibly difficult to win. I think the two teams they're playing uh, are in the opposite direction of them. It'll be really interesting to see what Arkansas looks like next week after their uh, cataclysmic defeat to Hugh Freeze and the fighting flames. Um, and then A&M, uh, honestly credit to them for the way that they played on Saturday. Um, but that, that team is an absolute shell of themselves. And who knows what the mindset of those kids will be, uh, Saturday after Thanksgiving. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think they will take care of business. I, I, th- I do believe they're going to end up winning the West, um, and then there's a broader conversation to have maybe next Sunday if Ole Miss beats Alabama on, you know, what this season means for Ole Miss. And, like, the whole point of expanding this playoff if a team like Ole Miss goes 11-1 and and is, you know, given an opportunity for an exciting Citrus Bowl in, in, in fucking Orlando. Um, but that's, it's no point in talking about that now because they still have to beat Alabama.
2: Yeah, no, that's absolutely they do. And, like, you know, catching Alabama off a loss doesn't usually work out well for teams. But it is a fascinating dynamic. We haven't had this sort of dynamic really since you and I were, I don't know, seven, eight years old. I mean, there's probably been an instance that I'm not thinking of that happens like this where it's like the West is actually wide open. There's usually one prohibitive favorite, one kind well, of – Well,
1: 2015 is honestly the Ole Miss version yeah. of what LSU is doing this year. Is You know, they had the opportunity – To win two football games and win the West. And And they didn't do it with a non conference loss. um, And we saw how that ended up working out, uh, unfortunately. So that's kind of the only real corollary event when it comes to this. But no, I mean, it's been pretty locked up by either Bama or LSU uh, pretty much every year for the past, you know, since like, you know, freaking 17 when Auburn kind of had a weird one off. I, yeah, it's well, been locked up that's I what I was getting at It's like there's a there, like there's always been one kind of
2: lockstep contender and then someone that can maybe challenge for it and you catch a weird year and maybe that team or a third team challenges for it and now this like lockstep contender is pretty much done um I guess they could get into a weird three-way tie if they beat Ole Miss and LSU loses I don't know how that works I would imagine LSU would still go but point being is like it's wide open for the first time in quite a long time. And like, I know Ole Miss people are probably sitting there listening to this kicking themselves to some degree. Cause I mean, look, they had a chance to win that game in LSU. I know it ended up 45, 20, but you're up 2017 at halftime to get a stop to start the third quarter. Like you had a chance to impose your will on that football game and you didn't. And so I, I guess to spin it out of the Alabama LSU conversation is just like, how do you approach this? If you're Ole Miss this week, I mean, clearly it's a massive football game. You need to beat Alabama to c- continue to keep your hopes alive, but it almost feels like half of this balloon has been deflated by the fact that Alabama was incompetent, which is such a bizarre place to be. But just how do you view this game this week for Ole Miss?
1: Well, I think Ole Miss is going to view it as, you know, we have to win every fucking football game. You know, Kiffin is not going to be coming into that meeting tomorrow morning and be like, damn, guys, there goes our okay. opportunity to win the West. So let's uh, pack up and head to Boca. Um it's going to be a huge game. It's going to be a huge game in the Grove, huge game in the stadium. It's in Alabama. That doesn't, that will not change uh, despite what the, you know, standings and all the outside uh, situation, you know, has provided or whatever. Uh, I mean, they're going to have to come out on fire. I think situationally, you know, Alabama off a loss, going on another road game, Ole Miss coming off a bye week at home where they play much better. I mean, you can't, put yourself in a better situational spot than Ole Miss has. Uh, I'm fascinated by their game plan. I'm fascinated if they watched anything last night and saw something decide decided they're going to change it. Um, I, I think if Bama this year has shown you anything, it's that if you can't stop Jameer Gibbs, you are going to have a chance to win the football game. And I don't know. I just don't know if Ole Miss is going to change their three-down three lineman look. The bin don't break. I don't think it works against Bama because Bryce Young with time is going to kick your ass. I mean, it's just a fact. LSU really got to him, really forced him off his spot. I mean, it it caused a a turnover. It caused multiple three and outs. Um, I mean, I just don't know. It's a, it's going to be a fascinating chess match. It's going to be fascinating to see, you know, kind of what these Bama players are, you know, what their attitude is toward this game. Is this, you know, a Will Anderson, Bryce Young kind of swan song, you know, let's let's go out on top. Is this a let's get our NIL money and uh, start working towards that first round deal conversation for some of these guys? I doubt that this this is Alabama. You know, they're they're wired completely differently than most most programs. Uh, it, it's very, very fascinating. Uh, and it's a very winnable game. Uh, I, I don't know if I'm going to call it a Ole Miss. I think they're going to win, but it is a winnable game, whereas you said before the season, this would be the one where you're like, yeah, I can probably chop that one up as an L. Uh, so, I mean, it's it's a huge game no matter what.
2: Yeah, and then I hate to bring in like in to get people's hopes up, but you've worked inside a program. You kind of understand how the dynamics of a locker room and a building work. There is a chance. Before that game, or 35 minutes into that game, a score gets posted that's, hey, Arkansas 20, LSU 17. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? I don't necessarily yeah. think it happens. I think LSU wins next week. I'm not necessarily trying to get old Miss People's hopes up. The reason I asked this question is does that change anything that happens on the field at that point? Because this is like, do you see this more in professional football? right, when they're kind of going down to divisions or wild card spots and stuff like that. And, like, we asked them not to show it in the stadium. We play our game. It's like, well, when you want to know whether you're going to the playoffs or not, how do you think that dynamic actually would work? Say, hypothetical, Arkansas were to win. Do you think that changes anything at all on the sideline? Blah, 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 whatever. Just your best guess.
1: I mean, I would hope not. I would hope you're so focused on the yeah. Alabama game. I mean, it's not like the players are there in the locker room with the LSU game on. I mean, I can I can guarantee you that.
0: Yes, I don't think uh, that
1: I mean, it's going to be a massive recruiting weekend, I would imagine. 230 uh, is pretty good for that where you can get a lot more kids in because they don't have to drive so early in the morning. So they're gonna be coaches will be handling recruiting and everything. My guess is they don't even see the final score. Now, maybe it trickles its way from the video board or everything, and then the stadium, you know, can explode if that, you know, happens to be the case. Uh, but I don't think there will be too much of a change. I don't think it'll affect the outcome, uh, or not the outcome, the demeanor of the players, the staff. Uh, if anything, it'll be more of a fan thing, uh, to kind of see how that ends up. Cause I would imagine uh it'll still be going on at least late in the fourth quarter once. L- uh, Alabama Ole Miss kicks off. Uh, so I, I can't imagine they're going to be too focused on it.
2: And that's, uh, I mean, as we get into this game this week, I guess we'll hop around the SEC in a second. You know, we talked about this line. What we talked about 14, 15 and a half. You tagged me in something on the message board earlier this week where like FanDuel or something had it open at 14 and a half. The main opens I saw today of course, off the Alabama loss, right? This was pre-Saturday. So when you were like 14, 15, like that's kind of we are like, all oh, right, that's right in the neighborhood. It's not going to go down to like eight and a half or nine and a half. Have you seen this yet? It's around like nine and a half to nine points, and it's a lot closer to eight than it is to 10, depending on what book you look at. What do you make of that at all? Do you think that's just off the Alabama loss? Curly, it's not anything Ole Miss has done. But I did find that a little bit surprising because I still do think this Alabama team as constructed is probably 10 to 15 points better than Ole Miss is, but then you get a loss and all of a sudden it jumps down to single digits. I'm not necessarily giving anyone gambling advice here. Look at Neil's picks. I think it went over for this week, just bottom out for the season. <laughs> been a lovely trip on a, uh, on that ride this week. But I guess my point is, is like, what do you make of that at all? Like, do you think they think, okay, Alabama has more flaws? Like, what do you think is it went into that gigantic line drop about six points based on one loss on the road
1: uh, i see 12 i, I wanted to okay so it's back to 12 so it's i
2: saw nine and a half on two books and that again, okay vary anywhere else i'm not saying that's the absolute line 12 actually feels a little bit more in the middle so maybe it's gone to 12 cents. that makes a little more sense but like just what do you make of the drop if anything in general is it just strictly off the loss or do you think they oh think- no you're right
1: this thing did this thing did yeah, it's moved uh, a lot this morning, I guess it's today the sixth. Yeah. Yeah. No, this morning it was at like nine and a half, eight and a half. Oh shit. See. Yeah. No, because it opened fourteen and a half was like the first preliminary line, and then it was at eight and a half uh, last night actually, and then it's kind of bounced between nine and a half, ten and a half, and now it's it's kind of settled at twelve. I would say, um, it, it's kind of around where I thought it would be. Um, I think it is a lot of situational betting. It, it's just looking at the travel, looking at the buys, looking at the health, looking at the mindset of the teams. I, I predicted it would be somewhere between 13 to 14 and a half, and it's a little lower. I would imagine that's just due to the loss. Um, it's kind of a buy low spot on Bama if you want them. Um to, to me, just knowing the matchups in this game, it doesn't necessarily make me feel a whole lot better. Uh, if this thing had opened up at, like, six or seven and stayed there, then I'd be like, okay, you know, game game on. And it, it's, of course, LSU was a 13-point underdog. So, the game is still on. Um, I think it makes a ton of sense. I, I think they're going to have it pretty close to direct. It'll be interesting to see where the money comes in. And, you know, like I talked about last week, nobody knows – why lines move the way they do they can tell you you can make your assumptions but nobody knows unless you work for a sports book um the capping is literally looking at those numbers and making an inference and figuring out what you like compared to what you don't um i mean it's going to be an awesome game i think it's going to be awesome i i just don't know um how much of a emphasis i put on the line being a little bit lower than expected you know, towards Ole Miss actually winning the game.
2: And we got a week to talk about this and kind of what will happen and what won't. I'd rather just bounce around the SEC with you because it was a strange, I say strange weekend, strangely impactful weekend. You know, there's a lot of weeks. We've done this for, what, nine, ten weeks now, and I'm sitting there thinking, oh, are these guys good or do they kind of suck? Like I would say that about 10 of the 12 teams in the SEC. I feel like I kind of know now. Um, and we'll start with the uh, – I guess the other consolation that should have been the game of the week is Alabama – or excuse me, Georgia-Tennessee. Um, I know – I don't know how much you caught of this because obviously you're going into the stadium at some point. But it ends up 27-13. That game was not as close as the 14-point final score. Uh, Tennessee just couldn't block um, Georgia defensively. And I guess that was the whole – hang up in this whole line remember that opened at like 11 and a half and we're sitting here on this podcast like wait a minute what like how does that work well it dropped down to like eight it kind of stayed around there and it turned out to be kind of true that that potent Tennessee offense could not block Georgia's defensive line and when Hooker was a lot under a lot of pressure those kind of tempo quick hitting decisions didn't really work I mean that's the slowest we've seen Tennessee go all year. And that's because you're starting second and twelve, second and fifteen. They could run the football on top of that. What did you make of this game? I don't necessarily know. Everyone was doing the whole well, Georgia's just an unbeatable like thing. Like they're clearly the number one team in the country. I don't know if I abide by that rule because I've seen Georgia in other spots, but this seemed like a much better matchup for the Bulldogs than maybe we gave it credit for.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of this game Uh, came down to this was this is Georgia's game of the year uh i mean looking at their schedule so far uh, they i mean have been challenged here and there uh, a little bit more than maybe they expected but it wasn't you know let's load up we're throwing all our bullets out there it's go time and this was that game for them it was at home 230 tennessee is the most hyped team in the country number one and they completely fell flat uh tennessee's kind of Offense one trick pony deal. It's really not one trick pony, but they have, you know, a certain type of offense that if they can get to the looks and the plays that they want and it works, it works over and over and over. And when they get punched in the mouth and George's DBs and their defensive scheme ends up kind of taking away the quick passes, taking away the, their ability to run the ball for, you know, four, three or four yards to set up their next play. Uh, I mean, it just completely melted for them. Uh, and then Georgia offensively was able to kind of run it on him at will. Uh, Setson Bennett made a ton of plays with his legs. Maybe one of the best games he's played in a while. I really only got to watch like the first half and a little bit of the third quarter. Um, and I didn't need to watch anymore because that game was over, you know, when it was, I mean, the, after the safety, I was like, this game is done. I mean, they, they have no response offensively or defensively to what Georgia's doing to them. It was a a pretty surprising effort, honestly. Uh, I mean, I like I said when I saw the line came out, I was like, I love everything about Georgia, but that doesn't always mean it's going to happen. Just giving you a a, a reference right to what you think. Um, And I mean, they they played their best game maybe under Kirby Smart. Except, I mean, you can call the best regular season game under Kirby Smart. It was a complete dominance uh, of a team that's been as hot as anybody.
2: Yeah, in addition to the pass rush, it was just the way George's corners were able to lock up. Like that that Ringo, or Ringo kid took Hyatt and a, and the other guy, once Hyatt got hurt out of the game, I mean, that, that, that guy, I think he had a turnover impacted in terms of a single DB, impacted a football game as much as I've ever seen in a college game in a long time. He just locked him up. I mean, Tennessee had a possession down towards the red zone. Um, Hooker throws a deep ball. He thinks he's got one-on-one with one of those receivers. I can't remember which one it was. And that Ringo kid just beat him. He was just in front of him. He caught the ball almost like it was in stride to him. And that was a gigantic turnover in that game. And I thought that was a microcosm for it, where it was like they're just better on the defensive line and their secondary is good enough to where this – you know, you describe it as a one-trick pony but not a one-trick pony at the same time. When certain conditions are right, like when the pass rush is not just beating you every play and you don't have an elite secondary, Tennessee's going to beat just about everybody – but it seemed like it kind of ran into their maker into that point where it was like, actually, Georgia's got dudes on the defensive line and Georgia has dudes in the secondary. And this whole tempo stuff is not going to throw us off because we're just kind of better than you at what you do best is what I saw from this.
1: Absolutely. And then Georgia with Jalen Carter back in the lineup, I mean, it's a completely different defensive line. I mean, they are just so much more athletic, so much more difficult to deal with. And in simplest terms, I mean, Tennessee could not block them on either side. I mean they could not block them they could not you know rush them they just got completely manhandled in the trenches uh, and you know every single game of football is pretty much won or lost in the trenches and uh, they they completely got their ass kicked in that regard and you could see it early I mean even when Georgia fumbled the ball I mean they were driving down on that first drive to to take the lead and then it was just like a kind of a just a slow burning death for Tennessee <laughs> to be honest, and now the funny thing is they are in a wildly similar position to Ole Miss. They are now, what, 8-1 and or 7-1 and or whatever, and they're probably on the outside looking on the East and probably on the outside looking into the playoff, especially if, you know, TCU continues to win, if one of these Pac-12 teams ends up a one-loss conference champion. I mean, it's going to be a really difficult scenario for them. I mean, if LSU wins the West and then beats Georgia – Well, they're not going to go in over Georgia, and they're probably not going to go in over LSU despite beating them because they didn't win the conference. Um, Of course, our committee uh, overlords, they just make up shit as they go. So you really never know. Um, But it's a weird scenario for them to kind of have just such a wet blanket of a game uh, in their most important game in 25 years. I mean, since feeling like 98 or whatever they always say, I mean, it was – it was pretty surprising, to be honest. Uh, but I think Georgia kind of flexed their muscles as, you know, I'm not going to be the one to do like Georgia's now the new Alabama. I'm not – we're not ready for that yet. But they are surely the best team in the country and probably the best program in the country right now.
2: As I was saying, they're damn close to what you're talking about. And it's one of those things – I think you bring up an interesting point, the whole like football's one in the trenches thing. Like everyone hates hearing that cliche – But Ole Miss has run into this multiple times throughout the few losses they've had during the Kiffin era. If you get beat on the offensive and defensive line, I mean, LSU is a prime example. Like, skill position-wise, like, again, LSU has pretty good receivers, don't get me wrong. But, like, it's not like they're just a huge mismatch for Ole Miss, but it's, it's one of those examples of, like, as cliche as it is, if you can't win on either side of the line of scrimmage, you really have no hope. Even if the other team is worse than you, if they're kicking your ass on the offensive and defensive lines, you're in a world of hurt. And so like, as complicated as we make football, like that's really as simple as it comes down to, like, if you're not winning on the offensive and defensive line, that's what makes offensive and defensive line recruiting so important. You're just kind of toast. Like, I mean, you can you can kind of scheme your way into wins here and there, but that's just not really how the sport works. Generally, that's generally how games are won. I mean, that's a very basic thought, but I just think it's interesting because Ole Miss has struggled with that offensive and defensive line depth at times throughout the Kiffin era, and then they, maybe you think you're better than other teams, but then like it's like actually no, you're not because you don't win up front. And I think that's a fascinating piece of football.
1: Absolutely, and and we have you know so many mobile quarterbacks in the league now that it can attempt to nullify yes, that exactly. issue but it's just a band-aid fix you know if, if it's all game long that will eventually wear out and it, it will not continue to work in your benefit uh, I mean if you look at the LSU Alabama game the LSU defensive line really dominated Alabama's offensive line they could not run the football effectively Bryce Young is athletic but he's not really a runner he, he, he runs you know escapes exactly. to throw the ball um, Hendon Hooker is a similar to where he wants to escape or throw the ball. He's he's a lot bigger than Bryce and a little bit more physical of a runner. Uh, but just down after down after down, if you can't block them and you can't get to the quarterback, it will show up eventually. You know, analytics, you know, throw those into the, uh, into the trash because it, don't, it won't matter if you can't block anybody.
2: So kind of bouncing around here, there's a bunch of other SEC games. I know you saw basically none of this. But Auburn State, like, what the hell, man?
1: Didn't see a play. Please. No, I know,
2: I know, I know. And I, I'm throwing you a complete impossible question. But just to, to to prime you for this, State's up 24-6 at half. Auburn's doing nothing offensively. State's defensive line's getting after them. It's the whole Robbie Ashford. I, I know no one has sympathy for him. I keep trying to throw that on UMB Cannon. I do feel bad for that kid. That poor kid gets up every play and he's like, I don't know. These guys suck without actually saying it, but it's on his face. So it's 24 to six. Aubrey gets a stop to come out of the second half. They get a turnover. They lock into a touchdown 24, 12. And you're like, all right, like this might get a little weird, but not really. And all of a sudden for nine straight drives, I had this pulled up earlier and I screwed this up because I'll exit out of it. State went something to the equivalent of punt, 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 turnover, punt, 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 turnover, punt, 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 turnover for nine straight drives toward Auburn with an interim head coach. They fired half of their staff, figured out the air raid offense, and the same thing was a- applicable in overtime. To State's credit, after Auburn went up 25-24 or 27-24, whatever it was, they orchestrated a decent drive to get a field goal to get the game into overtime. And I don't, you obviously didn't see this. God, Cadillac Williams called timeout twice. So that poor kid from state made a 45 yard field goal three times, which credit to him, nuts of steal. Like,
0: you know, Impressive.
2: oh, yeah, he makes it twice and he keeps calling timeout. And it, I didn't think Cadillac would call it the second timeout because it's like he got 45 seconds. You're like, hey, you need to go get down the field, maybe try yourself. But he knows his offense blows. Their offense still kind of stunk. And the Carlson kid misses a kick in overtime and state scores on like two plays. It is what it is. They win by six points, but like, holy shit. Auburn was a shell of a program. The only thing they had going for them is the fact that they have this legend of the program going for them as a head coach. I won't say they should have won this football football game because State ended up making more plays and Auburn was a little bit lucky to get in there, but they kind of should have won. They had a failed two-point conversion in the third quarter that would have made the difference in the game. State was lucky to win this football game and I guess it speaks to the bigger picture, which I'm actually trying to get to, is like this air raid thing. When you have an immobile quarterback and you don't run the football, you can have a ton of success for a half, and State gets up twenty four to six. But that second half, they did nothing offensively. I think they had negative yards in the third quarter, and it's really?
0: like, oh
2: yeah, no, they they did nothing. They turned it over twice. Auburn missed a field goal and then didn't go for it on fourth down. So Auburn wins the turnover battle by three or four, and still it goes to overtime because their offense is incompetent. Auburn could have won this football game by two touchdowns if they were remotely competent, but the air raid thing is like, I mean, I don't know. I'm not trying to be a dick, but, like, is it the jig up with this in the Southeastern Conference? Like, that's the worst team in the SEC outside of Vanderbilt, and they figured it out for a half. They didn't do anything for a half.
1: I think it's just the might league experience. Uh, This is just what you get with him. You get teams that are pretty good. You get teams that probably will almost always beat teams that are worse than them and almost always lose to teams that are better than them. Uh, they do not punch above their weight. They haven't done it this season once uh, that I can think of off the top of my head. And it's it just – it's not – I don't want to say it's not working because that that's probably not fair or accurate, you know, compared to expectations of Mississippi State this year. Uh, but it, it – that that's pretty bad. I mean, this no, is a bad I- – I think it's it's yeah. Go ahead, go ahead.
2: No, no, no. I think what you're saying is fair because look, you schedule four lenient non-conference games, and state was notorious through that for the Dan Mullen era, right? Don't get me wrong. They had they had to go to Arizona this year. I'm not saying their non-conference schedule was a complete just farce. It wasn't, and you know Arizona being bad, they can't help that. But in terms of it working, in terms of winning games in the SEC to meet or Exceed your expectations, this is clearly not working. Like, right. like I, I get what you're saying. They're still winning games. They're going to a bowl game, but at what point if you're Mississippi State do you look at that differently and say, okay, like we're seven and five, but cool. We beat six shitters. We won two SEC games. Congrats on the Liberty or Birmingham Bowl. I I just I know you say you don't want to say it's not working. I, I just d- disagree. I think it's not working. I think average SEC schools are figuring this out.
1: Well, I think it'll be interesting to see um, how they react to the end of the season because they're about to lose to Georgia next week. And then they play probably some cupcake and then they play Ole Miss. So if they lose that game, they'll be six and six, seven and five. And that would be for two years in a row, seven and five ish. And
2: three straight Egg Ball losses, which, as you know, does not fly there.
1: Yeah. It would be Asinon to do. But I wouldn't be surprised if they hire that new AD and let him bring his guy in. Doesn't uh, that
2: feel like a neck? I'm not disagreeing with like what you're saying. Doesn't that feel like if they fire if they do the new AD thing, that's a next year thing?
1: Well, aren't they gonna have to hire one before the end of the season, right?
2: I mean, the AD thing is strange. Remember, sometimes it takes like almost – the John Cohen thing is a little bit more of an outlier than it is a regular
1: thing. Well, because they had to hire a coach. I mean, they had to get an AD to fire Harson and then hire a new coach. So I get that. And they put
2: that on the president. Congrats to them for the – Sure,
1: sure, of course.
2: But you're exactly right. But they have a guy named Bracky Brett who's been there in the – Which is incredible,
1: by the way. Incredible name.
2: So, you, yeah, an incre- I was about to say, I thought you knew this guy. No, just no, here. no, no,
1: no, incredible name. I don't know shit about him. Incredible name.
2: <laughs> they have this guy that's been there a while. I just don't see how they hire a new guy before, I'd say, December. And you're going to fire the guy at this point. Maybe I'm wrong.
1: Maybe I'm completely wrong. You should wrong. not fire him. You should not fire him. But this feels In like a 23
2: thing, doesn't it, if he does
1: get yes. I think you're stuck with him for another year. I think they thought that he was going to come in and with better athletes was going to create an air raid that they have not seen yet. It, that has clearly not been the case. They've had a quarterback who has been competent to above competent uh, that has really not improved. He has been good for the second he took his first nap at Mississippi State. He is still a good player. Um, their athletes are no better or different than anyone else's. If anything, they are much worse than the majority of the SEC. Except for the fact they have three really good running backs who they just they don't, don't use. Play. So it doesn't matter. Uh, if their offensive line doesn't have a first-round pick at left tackle, they're not that effective. It, it's just – it's a match that in in all – you know, if he was at Tennessee, like he almost was, it would be more successful, I think. Uh, but where where he's at you know of course I'm sure they all cannot stand him down there. I saw some of the the post game stuff about the receivers and the chairs and you know that's that kind of stuff you know it gets old after after losses and for all intensive purposes what it sounds like this game was damn near or basically a loss in the eyes of Mississippi State people.
2: Well, he brought out the fat little girlfriend's comment. I don't know if you've seen Did that. Did he do it again? No, like he went back like to it. He got asked oh. about the receivers, and he said something about how instead of making plays, they went back to their fat little girlfriend's. Guess, that, guess what doesn't fly when you're losing? That.
1: Yes. I mean, it, well, like, and it's, it's so hilarious because you look at Dabo. I mean, they got their freaking ass kicked against uh, Notre Dame on Saturday, and Dabo comes out and says, you know, I coached a bad game. We were not prepared. This is on me, yada, yada, yada. And then Leach wins a close game against a terrible Auburn team and is making his same jokes. Like, it just doesn't last. It's doing. It and it's like, I mean, there's a chance. I mean, Georgia will be prepared for this game. I mean, if they don't score a touchdown against Georgia, one or two, I mean, they're in real trouble. Because if you remember – they actually almost beat Georgia in the COVID year. Yeah. But like, like all games of the COVID year, you could just throw it out completely.
2: Right. That was a big selling point for them, though. Remember, it was like we took 50, 41 kids or all that shit over there, and they won. And that's not taking anything away from them, but you're Correct. right. That's a big selling point for him still.
1: But if you notice, like they've got guys, so like ra Thomas is a really good football player. Um, but where, where the hell is Jaden Wally been? Yeah, I mean, that guy was like a freshman All American. I mean, he is a complete zero. They Two. lost
2: another kid to Tennessee. Who was that? Remember that? Uh, I forget who it was. He hasn't made a huge impact. They had a decent wide receiver. They lost him to Tennessee after last year. I forget his name. I'm derailing your thought, but the point being. Oh, yeah.
1: I remember who you're talking about, but so, it doesn't really matter.
2: Well, what I was going to ask you is, is the whole selling point for Save was like wide receivers are going to love to play in this offense. It does not seem like wide receivers love to play in this offense.
1: I don't think that they do. I mean, it's it's not – it's such a dink and dunk. It's, you're not making plays. It's just – it's so coordinated and it's so mathematical that it's just not the same. I mean, Willie Keith has been, you know, wildly better this year and in, in Kiffin's offense than I think he ever was at State. Now, he had his own issues that are kind of off the field and, and you know, makes things a little bit more difficult to kind of get a true understanding of what was going on.
0: He was a long but time. Facts for facts.
1: I mean, I mean, he has just been a better football player here. Um, and I just I don't know. I mean, what is your expectation at Missouri State? Is it the same as Ole Miss? I, I think Ole Miss with Kiffin, their expectation is is completely different. State may want to be the team that wins 10 games. And honestly, roster straight up has the ability to win nine or 10 games. Missouri State has a good defense. It is not a great defense, but it is an absolutely a good defense run by a really talented defensive coordinator. They have an offense that is that is working and not working at the same time. It's it's I can't, I don't want to say it's not working because they put up numbers and they beat awesome. what they're supposed to be. You can say it, and that that that's fine. And I don't, I don't necessarily disagree with where you're coming from. Uh, but it's just it's like expectations compared to results-wise. they're, they're a seven and five, eight and four program, by the way, Ole Miss is not far from that, you know, they're not far from years of being worse than that. So it's not, you know, me puffing out my chest. Like I always say, I, I Mississippi state to me is just not, it's not, I don't have the same feelings. Most people from Mississippi have I'm from Louisiana. I just, I love beating them. I don't have any friends, any connection to that place. It doesn't, I'm not saying this coming from some like Ole Miss fan perspective. I don't care what they do. It just doesn't matter to me um, as much as beating LSU would. Uh, They just – it feels like they're just going to be fine, and they're going to continue to be fine. I I just – that's it for them. That's it.
2: Well, I thought one of the early days of this pod, one of the interesting points you made um, among many was the fact that – and this got on the message board was the fact that we were talking about recruiting and we were talking about something else, and you were like, look – like." Ole Miss has been kind of mired in this whole Ole Miss versus state thing, mud dragging, and now they've kind of finally risen above that. And it's like you finally realize, like, Ole Miss has a higher ceiling than state. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that was basically what you are getting at. It was like they're more attractive as a program than Mississippi State is. And I don't want to turn this into that kind of debate, but when you talk about expectations for both schools in the state, it is very interesting how these schools have diverged into two different paths once the, you know, focus on the program or the Egg Bowl has gone past the fact of this is the world's biggest clown show and we just want to win this trophy, if that makes any sense.
1: 100%. Mississippi State through the years has been a better development program than Ole Miss. That that is a straight up fact. But just their upside, their ability to recruit out of state, even some years the ability to recruit in state, it's just not the same. I mean, they Ole Miss has only shot themselves in the foot to not have achieved more than Mississippi state throughout the years. That that has been the, it's them fighting against themselves, not state doing anything or everything to to, to figure it out. I mean, obviously the NCAA stuff, blah, blah, blah. I I don't care about that. Ole Miss, if Mississippi state's the biggest game on their calendar, it's a problem. It's a huge problem if you want to get where to where you want to go, I mean, Ole Miss is able to recruit nationally to an extent, you know, it's, it's not Notre Dame, it's not Alabama, it's not LSU, but they can get players from places where like Mississippi state just simply doesn't have the brand attractiveness to do so. They aren't going to go into Dallas and Houston to get players. They aren't going to go to South Florida and get players. You know, they're going to get, guys from louisiana that lsu doesn't want they're going to get their fair share of elite players in mississippi because it's just always how it is and they'll go to bama and tennessee and then they'll develop those guys and they'll be a good program with years to you know like we've seen be much better than good but i do think where you are right is that the air raid that 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 margin for error is now so much smaller because if you don't you know, get the guys in that, you know, buy in and that develop correctly, then you're just kicking yourself in the face basically because your, your scheme will never evolve and the players that are in it will never really develop, especially on the offensive side of the ball, the way that you would like to see uh, because of just, that's what they do now. And I think they're stuck with it. The fighting Hugh freezes get a win
2: at Arkansas I uh I didn't watch a ton of this game. I uh it got up 21 to three or something at halftime, and I was like, all right, I'll give this some second TV treatment. And I gotta say, Liberty just kind of kicked Arkansas's ass. I don't really think there's any other way to describe what happened on Saturday. And then all of a sudden, I'm thinking, wow, this Liberty quarterback's pretty good. And then Hugh Freeze after the game goes, you know, that's our third string. We've been down a lot of people this week, and I'm sitting there thinking, holy shit, like what, <laughs> what? Like, how does this work? Um, did he win the Auburn job by uh by doing what he did this weekend?
1: I mean, the the guy that was the AD at Mississippi State that was working to turn in Hugh Freeze and that was present at the NCAA meetings is not hiring Hugh Freeze at Auburn. Auburn is not hiring Hugh Freeze. I don't care what anybody says. That is not going to happen. Okay, I refuse now- to believe it. I refuse to believe. it. I refuse to give any notion to any single person who brings it up, it's not happening. No way in hell is it going to happen. It's just I, – I think everybody that's reporting it, whether it's like the big media guys, it's the same big media members who a lot of them I, I'm fine with, they bring up his name for every single job. I wonder why. It's because he's out there doing it. I mean, if you saw the freaking press conference or whatever, I mean, they had like an Auburn reporter asking him questions and Freeze was like – I do this everywhere I go. I could definitely do it at Auburn. I mean, it's just, it's not going to happen. So I give it a 0% chance.
2: All right, I'll counter this. And I don't necessarily believe this to be the case by any stretch. I'm playing a hundred percent devil's advocate here. One, the whole NCAA thing was more Moen driven than it was anything else. It started with Scott Strickland more so than it did John Cohen.
1: Fair, very fair. On
2: top of that. Cohen is walking into a place where whatever he thinks he's going to do, he's going to have to toast some marching orders in order to not get fired within about 18 months. Just what if, on top of all those things being true, someone, I don't know if it's Tim Cook, I don't think he's heavily involved, or one of those big money Auburn guys is like, I'd like Bishop Hugh. I'd like him to speak at my church. I'd like him to be the head football coach here. Is that possible in your mind? Because I think it could be.
1: The, the the thought that I don't think he's going to be fired is much different than do I think he would do well and should he be hired. Sure, yeah. Those are way different topics. I think he would kill it at Auburn.
2: I actually think he would too.
1: I think he would do great. I do. Because he's a good football coach. Uh, he's an egomaniac who refuses to look at linebackers and defensive players. Uh, he's a star ranking guy. He's a fake Christian, you know, all the above, like he's all of those things, which is obviously why I don't think he will be hired. Um, but I do see where you're coming from. Yes. If one of those guys wants him, then at the end of the day, they'll probably get their way. My whole point is I don't think anyone at that place is going to want him as much as he wants that job. I don't think he's ever going to be the number one candidate for that job. I think the number one candidate will be at Ole Miss. Um, I just don't see it. There is so much shit there, and you can say it's years ago. That that's totally fine, and I I don't even disagree. It still
0: with exists, you.
1: but it still it still exists. Are you really going to out of all this turmoil, out of all this nonsense, Auburn has gone through the last two years go and hire Hugh Freeze to settle the ship. I, I just don't see it. I, I don't understand it. I don't believe a word of it out of anybody. I'm, I'm sorry.
2: No, no, you're good. I'm looking for – exactly yeah. right. If you're looking for stability. That is not Captain Stability. That is not yeah. uh, we're going to run a clean ship here. I'll flip it to the other side because I don't feel like as many people are talking about this. Sam Pittman, I know he's done a decent job. I know he's made them competitive, but, like, what the hell?
1: But It's bad. Um, I'm not worried about that program necessarily. Uh, I think they've had, you know, just one of those years. Uh, he's still a good football coach. Bryles can still coach offense. We know for a fact Barry Odom can still coach defense. Uh, They just have to keep retooling that roster. Um, Is KJ a senior?
2: No, I think he's got another year. I believe he's a junior. I'll look that I, up though while you're rolling.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think they've got playmakers in that team. They've got a really good running back. They've been able to develop offensive linemen. Defensively, they've been atrocious all year. Um, they had that terrible AM loss that they clearly were unable to emotionally bounce back from. Just it seems like the coaching staff, the entire team.
2: Redshirt uh, junior, by the way. So he's a, a red he's shirt a, junior. Yeah.
1: So maybe you get him back for a year. Maybe he tries his hand in the NFL as a tight end, of course. I'd come uh,
2: back if I were him.
1: I'd probably come back if I were him. Uh, but then at the end of the day, it's like, you know, what's your NIL money compared to, you know, being a fifth-round quarterback? I, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say. Um, it's just been one of those years. Uh, I think that they are going to be fine in the long run. Uh, they've just got to – I mean, they're going to have to hit the portal like they did this year again to kind of attempt to retool that defense. Um, I think while Browse is there offensively, they will be competent, but they sure as hell didn't show it today. Uh, that was a pretty big uh, late egg there. Uh, I'm not pressing the panic bucket button on them at all. I think you've seen that they're capable of being a good football team. And I'm, I still think they're not even that bad. This is just – this is like just a – it's a weird outcome. It's just a fact. I mean, it's just a bizarre outcome uh and it's a, kind of put a pretty uh you know negative outlook on their season but I think as a program they're in a really good spot So,
2: I buried the lead in some senses um kind of going back to the Ole Miss side of it do you think old, uh, Lane Kiffin would take the Auburn gig
1: oh uh, do I think he would yeah yeah do I think he will I, I have no idea do I think he would absolutely Yes. Do I think he will? I think that is a much more complicated question. If Auburn comes out and provides a contract of like 10 years and a hundred or over a hundred million. That's
2: where I sit too.
1: Then it, it's, I'm not going to say it's over because I honestly, I have no idea what Ole Miss could reach. I do not. I know they're obviously their contract deal is very weird, Um But, yeah, if they do that and they, you know, give him NIL stuff and they do all that they can do and they give him the godfather offer, then, yeah, I think he could leave. Like I said, do I think he will leave? That's a much more difficult conversation and a much more. You know, there's so many twists and turns of coaching searches. Uh, I know for a fact Lane does diligent research on not only the place, but the current roster. I mean, all of the above. He I mean he is not going to just jump because they throw out a huge contract in front of him, especially because Ole Miss will be able to be competitive. They will never, I don't think they'll be able to give him more than Auburn. So, um, so I don't know. It, it it'll be fascinating to see how he looks at this job.
2: I would say I have it on fairly decent authority that I think Lane Kiffin will make ten dollars, ten million dollars a year to Ole Miss next year. Now, the problem with the Ole Miss contract situation is the fact that state law forbids you then
1: correct to 40. give
2: then like to give a government contracted employee which an old miss football coach is beyond four years there's a stipulation in there and i don't know what it is i'm not a lawyer i'm just some asshole with the podcast that you can get it to six to some way in terms of whether it's guaranteed under the table i don't know you can get it to six but what the Auburn thing, like the way I think about it, is is the only way he would take Auburn is that they offer, like you said, ten years, a hundred million guarantee. Where you look at it and you go, "This is, that's a hundred million dollars. That's that's guaranteed nine figures wealth for you know the majority of the rest of the good years of my life," uh-huh. whereas. I think he looked. if he looked at the situation, like you said, look at the research and the roster and all that, I don't think he'd take the the Auburn job. I think the only way he'd take the Auburn gig is the fact that they just offer some stupid amount of guaranteed money to where he's like, what am I going to do? You know what I mean? I'd be an idiot not to take it. Whereas, like again, as you mentioned, he does extensive research. I don't think the Auburn situation is better than Ole Miss. I think it's much more, I would say, worse than Ole Miss at this point. So that's kind of where I fall on it. Is like I think he probably in the ideal perfect fit scenario might do it, but I don't think he's leaving Ole Miss. And it's funny, we'll do this exercise. Guess what? Did the Carolina Panthers call. <laughs>
1: I don't see that. Black I, Monday. I, I it's like, well, all right, we're
2: gonna do this again, and he'd probably take it.
1: Yeah, I don't anticipate NFL teams going back to the college ranks anytime soon, uh, unless it's it's a different deal. I I I just after the Matt Rule deal after what Cliff Kingsbury is. Is going through over there. I, I don't I don't anticipate Lane's name coming up seriously for any NFL jobs. Um I think the Auburn's the only one. I think it'll be the only one. This this cycle that you'll have to be worried about um in terms of him leaving. Uh in a vacuum, the Auburn job is a better job than Ole Miss. Right. In a vacuum. In the context of now, I don't necessarily feel the same way. Um because I think what he's built, I think the team that could potentially be there next year compared to what that roster looks like at Auburn, the, the kind of equalizer of all of that is, is the portal, um, the opportunity for him to take that job and then, you know, really stick it to Ole Miss. Not that I'm saying that this is what he's thinking or what he will do is, you know, take the Auburn job and, you know, tell Micah Pettis, former Alabama kid, Quincon Judkins, Jalen Williams, like, all right, you know, hope we all enjoyed Oxford for our year here together. Let's uh, head on over to the plains real quick. That's where you know the portal becomes that equalizer. Uh, not only you know a pinch potentially Paul O'Reilly and taking Ole Miss players, but then you know just grabbing whoever who is in the portal and bringing him to Auburn. He's shown he could do it, and yeah, they're going to have resources and the NIL money to, to probably make it work if he needs to. I just don't know if he wants to do that. I don't know if he feels like uh, he has to go do an entire rebuild again. Yes, it's not your typical rebuild, where you probably have to take three years or something. It, it could be one or two, like similar to what he's done at Ole Miss. And, yes, people will tell you it will probably be easier to recruit at Auburn. Um, and I would say, you know, past context gonna that to be true you your – I, I don't know what's going to happen. I, if I was him, I don't know if I would do it, but guess what? I most certainly am not him. Um, I, I, it would just be, I think it will end up coming down to money. And if that's really, you know, what he's going to go for, but also, I mean, Auburn's been to two national championships. Auburn's won the West a lot. Auburn has history of being really, really good when they get things wrong in the same direction that the problem is they just don't do that all that often, but the upside is is very, very clear. I think Ole Miss as a job right now is as good right now as what he can do at Auburn. It, it, I just don't know what's going to happen. It's going to be wild ride to see till you know, December, Iron Bowl, blah, 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 whatever. I just don't
2: see it because I think there's a piece of him that, you know, you talk about the jobs that he would or would not take. I think one of them is probably Alabama. Would you agree with that?
1: Yes, automatically very...
2: qualify him from that I'm not trying to be like a no
1: man. no you oh so you did. I don't think so. Now, mm-hmm. I am not deeply ingrained in Alabama. the it's obvious what that rivalry is. but if he goes to Auburn, there is no one stopping him from going to Alabama unless the freaking government comes in and puts in a stipulation that the head coach of Auburn cannot go to be the head coach at Alabama. Uh, there's no context to it. There's no uh, precedent to it. But I, I refuse to believe that if he goes to Auburn and Nick Saban retires and they decide that they want Lane Kiffin to be the head coach, that he won't do it. Now I kind of agree with Siski. I don't believe that Lane will ever be given the opportunity to be the head coach of Alabama. Uh, but no, I don't. Think, I don't think so.
2: No. Oh, okay. So I, I wouldn't even go in there. Why?
1: I mean that that ending was 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 not great, uh, and people don't forget stuff like that. Um, you know, his success on the field was obvious. What he's you know what he brought to that program was you know was very very clear. Uh, I just don't know if they would be able to to go through the lane experience again. I, I don't know if. I mean, people assume it, and I would I would imagine it's true, that he would want that job, and that is the job that he wants. I just don't know if that interest will end up being reciprocated, in my opinion. And I don't know. I don't have anyone telling me that. I, I don't sure. talk Fair to or, or people. That's just my, my thoughts is I think the assumption that he would go to Alabama is obviously yes. The assumption that Alabama would want him, I think, is a little bit more murkier than people would probably imagine.
2: Fair enough. Last couple of things before we get out of here. Um, Kentucky, Mizzou. Please tell me you saw at least the end of this game.
1: I didn't see a second of this. So, game. so great it, podcast, by the way. I've seen like I saw like two games, and we're talking about all of them. But
2: you don't have to know about it. This was insane. So Mizzou's down like three points in the fourth quarter. They get a stop, about two minutes left. And it's like all right, they're gonna have a go, de- have a chance to go down. I think they'll probably kick a field goal to tie it, or at a certain point. You know, if they get a little frisky, they'll probably win it. Snap goes over the Kentucky punter's head. Oh my so he goes back 35 yards back to the goal line to pick it back up. Well, guess what the Mizzou player does? Just tackles his ass. It's like, to hell with this guy. He's, you know, a ball carrier. I'm tackling him. Well, guess who gets called for roughing the punter after the, uh, after the ball went 15 yards over his head, and that's how the game ended. Wait, what? Yeah, so so Mizzou had a chance to go down to tie or win the football game. The snap goes over the Kentucky punter's head. It bounces three times. The Kentucky punter picks it up right by the goal line where I'm thinking, oh, man, they're going to tackle him, and it's actually going to be better if they tackle him not in the goal line because obviously the touchdown. goal line would be a safety. Yeah. Because if they tackle him not in the goal line, they're going to get the football in the one-yard line with a chance to punch it up. The guy turns around and makes a half-ass effort, I'd say, at best, to punt it. Well, the Missouri, Missouri player tackles him, and they call roughing the punter because he's in the act of punting and the game ends because uh, Kentucky gets an automatic first down.
0: Oh And my apparently
2: God. some rule has to go with the fact that they're inside the tackle boxes, and he was technically inside the tackle box, and that is how Mizzou lost that football game. Oh, am
1: from hell. We're talking- I did not see a okay. second of this, obviously because it was Kentucky and Missouri – Sure, but
2: I did not see a
1: second of that play. That's
2: how that happened. So so you're talking about the year from hell, Auburn, Mizzou, had Georgia beat, fumbled going into the goal line to beat Auburn. I mean, Jesus. Well, I mean, they extended him before the game, didn't they? Uh, they should have. Dude. He's not a bad coach. He's got a good defense. Like, I, I don't know if Eliad Drinkwich is a good coach. I know this is not his fault. Like this no. is God's
1: being like you. You suck. Like this is this is over for you. I mean, you just really look up for Missouri this year, and like there are like five games that could have absolutely been swing games and completely changed the outlook on that program. They I could be like six and true. two. I, maybe I'm zagging, but I don't. I think he's a good coach. I, I think, think the, so. Team they had this year is not a bad football team. They just. I mean, it is the saying of all sayings that good teams win close football games. So maybe I'm wrong, but uh, I mean. But look I'd, at the
2: guys he has coming into that program. He's recruiting well.
1: Yeah, he absolutely is. He's got, I mean, they have a legitimately good defense. Uh, offensively, they're okay to maybe not even okay. Um, but they've been in every, they've been in almost every game, except for Kansas State, who, like we've said before, is like really good. I mean, also Texas this week, but they are a really good football team. They like four flips of the coin away from being like a nine-win team this year. It's unbelievable. I'm not like I'm similar to Arkansas. Uh, Now Arkansas has you know you've kind of seen the product, you've kind of seen the proof of concept there. Missouri maybe not yet, but I'm not pressing the panic button on them yet. Now if like every one of their really good players goes to the portal, then you know that's that. But um, they're I feel like they're close to becoming a, a pretty decent program.
2: Well, the real reason I wanted to bring it up was actually not from the Missouri angle. This is the last thing we'll get to before Soccer Corner is, like, Kentucky. They, this was supposed to be the team. He's, he's leading, right? Right. Do you think Stoops leaves to re- because he he's reached the peak? Like, this is not a good football team. Like, I, they won the game. Congrats to them. They're not very good.
1: No. I, I, this has to be kind of that inflection point of – Steve has to look
2: at this and say, I don't know if I can do any better.
1: It just depends what he wants. Does he want, you know, secure job security for the rest of his life and to be in this kind of, you know, torture of seven and five to nine and three to maybe a 10 or two here with your best, you know, foot forward? Or do you try to try to go somewhere else where you think maybe you could do more? What are those opportunities? I mean, Auburn is one of them, of course. I don't know if he's going to be a player down there. The obvious and, you know, one that's always floated about is, is Iowa's alma mater. Is that really a better job than Kentucky? I would say you have a better opportunity to win more football games there because of the division, excuse me, that you're in. Um, And I think, you know, kind of like I mentioned, you're seeing the East – in the, the SEC East, you know, Georgia is obviously Georgia. Tennessee, I don't expect them to, like, fall in their face next year and be terrible. Florida, I will say it from the hilltops, will be good soon. Uh, They are definitely not this year, but they will be. Um, Kentucky, I mean, sorry, South Carolina is uh growing slowly, Uh maybe. You know, they look like they're going yeah. on the upward trajectory. I'm not 100% sure they actually are. And then Missouri, we talked about them. I feel like they're close. And then Vanderbilt's Vanderbilt, even though I I, I love what they're doing down there. Um, you're, like, the only program that's, like, definitely going down this year, which yeah. is a year you thought you were going to be competing for, you know, potentially to win that division. So it just kind of depends on what Stoops thinks of that job. Is it the Calipari shit he's frustrated about? Uh, and, and see where he goes from there. I, I feel like this might be the year uh, for for a myriad of reasons that he considers leaving.
2: I didn't even think about the Florida A&M thing. I guess that is actually the last thing we'll get to. They had a flu outbreak, apparently. They're in College Station. Um, they did lose the football game. They were in it for a while. I get they can't fire him. I get that they probably won't. But, like, my God, they're about to be, like, what, four and eight, potentially? How does, um, How does that jive with expectations?
1: Listen, I mean, it's not good. Now, now today or yesterday or whatever, I mean, yeah, they had like freaking 25 players out with the flu. And uh, like I said earlier, a, a pretty big credit to them for coming out and playing the way that they did. Because, um, I mean, they had showed a little bit of heart where you could expect a team like that to just completely fold um, based on the kind of like what, what you've been hearing and what they've shown this year. Uh, not a whole lot to take in this game. I mean, the expectation – I mean, they're not going to buy him out. um out. They, they could. I refuse to believe that they won't or can't, but uh, they should not, and I don't think that they will. Uh, I mean, he's going to ha- – I mean, we talked about it last week, didn't we? I mean, do we really think he's going to cede all of his power and change his staff? Uh, or is he going to call Basically. their bluff and just take their money? Uh, I don't know. I mean, this is going to be the most fascinating um, – team and roster to watch come portal time uh, because I I expect there to be a lot of attrition on that team Uh, whether it's forced by the program because these guys are just like not you know either we just don't want to pay them anymore or uh, they're not doing what we expected to do or just simply leaving because this is not what they wanted and expected I I think there's gonna be a lot of flux with them uh, come December 5th or whatever that day is.
2: It is now time for the fastest-growing segment on American soil. It is soccer corner. Boy, do we have a doozy here. So Manchester United has slipped into fifth despite their goal differential being, what, minus one on the year. Mm. Spunky upstart team. I don't know if that's what you signed up for when you started rooting for Man U, but wow. So what do we have going on? Because it's yet another week that Arsenal's at the top. I saw some tweet from someone that seemed a credible football writer. That's F-U-T-B-O-L. Um, said every time you think Arsenal is going to hit a peak, they don't. I guess we'll start with the age-old question. Has anything changed for you? Is Man City winning this league?
1: I, I still think they are. But in
2: your voice. It sounds like it. We finally cracked the code.
1: I'm coming around to the possibility that Arsenal will compete more than I thought that they would. OK, uh, today, this morning, they went and played Chelsea and beat them one zero. It was uh, a pretty, you know, a pretty boring game from all intents and purposes. But it was finally a win for them against a big six team in a, uh, you know, in a really impressive fashion. Uh, that's kind of what we have been waiting for them. It's like they've beaten up the guys they should beat. Now, when they play the, the good teams, are they going to continue it? And they have. Uh, and that's you know pretty impressive by them and a credit to them. So I, I'm opening my eyes to that possibility. Uh, Man City, on the other hand, had like to have the most luck of all luck to end up beating Fulham uh, on a 95th penalty kick by Holland Ooh. off a wildly questionable, in my opinion, penalty kick given to them. Uh, they had a red card earlier in the game, City did, so they played 10 down. Uh tied for the majority of the match and you know, somehow pulled away with this. So they're honestly lucky to be where they're at in the standings today. Um, but I do think the depth of that team will win out in the end. But you know, shit, at this point, Arsenal's been the best team in the league.
2: So, I mean, what are the odds are we getting on someone non-Man City winning the league? I mean, Tottenham's up there throwing eight points back. I mean, what's the what's the point of no return at this point? If your X points back, you have no shot of winning this league. What is that point of return at this thir- 13, 14 matches in?
1: Uh, I mean, our, if Arsenal's at 34. I mean, if you're at, like, where Chelsea's at, or, I mean. Okay, even, so all the way down to,
2: like, 13, you still got a Even shot.
1: Liverpool, it's at 19 points. I mean, that's, that's an uphill climb you probably will not catch. Um, I don't know the history on it. I don't know what kind of comebacks have happened this league in the past. Um, Liverpool had a big win today against Tottenham to kind of get back into shape in the league. But I just – I feel like at that number, you're probably too far out from winning this league, especially when it's really two teams. It's with City and Arsenal. Because even if one of those falters, the odds of both of them like completely collapsing down the stretch is pretty low. So
2: my team – I say my team. It's not actually my team. We've been on the Wolverhampton watch. The uh, offensive juggernaut that is Wolverhampton actually scored two goals in one game, but they got zero points as the result. They lose two to three. Looking down towards the bottom in this league, it seems like the cream is starting to separate from the crop. It looks like Nottingham Forest probably going down despite all the money they spent. Wolverhampton not in a great place. And then after that, it's like, Southampton, Everton, West Ham, who's going down? That third team could get pretty interesting in terms of who might go down this year.
1: Yeah, I, I don't think it's as separated as most would. I mean, I'm pretty confident that Nottingham, Forest, and Wolves are going down. I mean, Southampton's in that spot. They've had some injuries. I do not anticipate them staying there. But if you look at it, I mean, from 11 to 20 is separated by six points.
2: That's two, not a lot. Two
1: wins. Um and, I mean, you saw Leeds today had – I mean, the game of maybe – I mean, I guess that wasn't today. That was uh, – I'm trying to pull it up. I think it was yesterday. Uh, Leeds and Bournemouth had, like, maybe the game of the year and another game to attempt to save Jesse Marsh's job. Uh, they won 4-3. And let's see, and they did – they've won two games in a row. And they're uh, still only, pretty,
2: like, three points out. In right
1: pretty up. epic fashion. And they are literally five points – or three points away – from being back in the uh, in the zone, so it, it's not as fleshed out as as it may look. Um, especially, you know, just look at the goal differentials and like I think the bottom four teams are the bottom four teams, but there's a lot to be played down there.
2: I'd be remiss if I didn't ask Newcastle Saudi Castle United seven points back. Seems like they're on a tear. These players have been buying with Saudi money. I mean, what would it take for them to win this sucker?
1: It would take them buying another – an extra two players in January that are like real difference makers. I haven't like talked to our difference.
2: salary cap, guys. It sounds like that's on the table. I've heard our sure. salary cap is infinity.
1: Yeah. They can probably fit it into the budget. Um, I mean, I, I think their ability to get top four is, is for sure. I mean, that is their game on that end. Uh, to win the whole thing – I mean, you just kind of look at you know their their outcomes compared to Arsenal. I mean, Arsenal is 11 one and one, City is 10-2 and one, and Newcastle is seven, six, and one. Yeah. Uh, they're not fraudulent. They have been absolutely on fire. I think defensively, they've been maybe the best team in the league over the last month. I mean, they have just been complete. I mean, clean sheet, clean sheet, clean sheet. They they just do not give up a lot of opportunities. Um uh, they've had some playmakers up front that have have really improved over the year. I mean, they're really good. I mean, Al Al I think is his name, Almiron uh has scored like a goal in like six straight games. I mean, they've just been really, really good. Uh, and that's you know, for them, that's probably what they expected. I'm sure their their Saudi overlords expect more. Uh, but it's it's pretty hard to complain where they're at this point at this point in the season.
2: This has been the fastest growing segment on American soil. It is soccer corner. I am a believer that someone named not Man City will win the league. Maybe I am just a Pollyanna uh, optimist, but we shall see. He is Weldon Rodenberg. We'll see you next week, my man. I appreciate it. See ya. All right, that was Weldon. Appreciate his time as always. That was some good stuff. We'll talk to him Sunday after the Alabama game. There will be much to discuss, I'm sure. And before we get to Bracken, I want to remind you the podcast is brought to you by LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. Go see Greg. If you're a Rippy Wright subscriber, that's substack.com. You get a free newsletter from me a couple times a week and discounted meats. Right now it's a 16-ounce prime strip for 20 bucks and a $5 pack of sausage. Just go in there, show Greg proof of subscription, and he'll get you set up with the Rippy Wright special. And then go find your own favorites. It's the best butcher shop in the world. All kinds of delicious cuts of sausage, seafood. I like the tri-tips. The filet burgers are always awesome. So many great options. Oxford is so lucky to have a place like LB's. Check them out. LB's University Avenue in Oxford. All right. Let's get to Bracken Ray. All right. We will now welcome on Rippy Wright's basketball correspondent. It is that time of year. Former Andy Kennedy staffer Bracken Ray. Uh, it's good to talk to you again. I was about to say it felt like yesterday, but it really hasn't. It actually felt like a bajillion years since the basketball season ended. But uh, we're back at that time of year. I appreciate you joining me, man. How are things on your end?
0: Man, everything's good. Uh, gearing up for the Oxford weekend with Bama coming in town here soon and college basketball starting this week as well. So all's is good in my wa- world. Yeah,
2: dude, you're. Uh, I know a lot of people – I say a lot of people. I know a certain few people that are really into college basketball, and I'm pretty sure you're a one seed, and I don't know who else fills out a bracket. This has got to be kind of getting close to Christmas time for you. We'll start there. I had a couple of macro basketball thoughts I wanted to get to you – get – like talk to you about. So you have this like start of basketball season, but I think if you ask like the average fan, hey, when's basketball season start? They'd probably tell you like Thanksgiving or a week before – it's like we have these staggered opening nights where none of the games really seem good. And then you get to like the beginning part of next week and you'll have like the, you know, the Gillette classic or whatever it is, or the NIT preseason tip off at Madison square garden point being, whatever the dates are, it's kind of staggered. Are you in the camp of like college basketball should have like some badass opening night. And that's like the set opening night. Cause like every other sport does it. I just wonder why college hoops does it.
0: Yeah, I I do think they should, and um, I think maybe what you're referring to, like Champions Classic, which is Duke, uh, Kentucky, Michigan State, and maybe uh, Kansas. I don't know. They've they've done the past couple years that rotating um, game and starting the season off with that would be a lot of fun because – I'm with you. It seems like a lot of people in their mind, and some of this parallels with when regular season for football ends, but a lot of people in their minds, like the Maui Invitational, is kind of like when the season starts, so to speak. And so, you know, there's definitely a viewership piece of it, and it would be smarter for the people running college basketball to maybe have those games on the weekdays rather than the weeknights in the month of November because of college football still running in parallel. But yeah, there definitely should be something out of the gate a little bit to, you know, wake the wake the audience up that hey, it's here.
2: Yeah. It's just one of those things. It's not even necessarily a complaint. It's just like a there's no grand opening. Like a lot of those times when you get the blue bloods meeting early in the season, it might necessarily it might be on opening night some years, but some years it's felt like you've had schools open up either like the couple of days prior and then you have like the main event that Tuesday or Wednesday. It's just always kind of weird how it staggered. I mean, I was looking at the schedule this year, unless I'm mistaken something pretty much everyone starts this Monday, November 7th, Ole Miss, which we'll get to in a second tips off at like 8 PM, but none of the champions classic or that stuff is this Monday. Is that like delayed a week? Like, it seems like everyone is kind of playing a a tune up before then.
0: Yeah, it is. And um, I was looking earlier at the AP top 25. And so looking at the top 25 and each um, team's opponent, they're playing. Like, I'm not even sure that there is anybody in their first game playing a G six team. There's, like, not um, – I'm glad you the, Yeah, up. I mean, I think the, all, maybe, the, maybe the hardest – like,
2: like, it's all that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, that's right. Like, the biggest name-brand school that a top 25 team's playing is probably UTEP playing Texas. Yeah. I mean, which is just – which is crazy. And that's, you know, that's that's not even a team that's – favored be, to be at the top of their conference. So, yeah, I mean, I definitely think that that's, that's something interesting. Um, especially if you timed it out on a weekday where it's not interfering with college football.
2: Last one before we get to Ole Miss, here's just a terrific question. How in the world is Ole Miss swing their way into Maui? Is that ever happening?
0: You know, I think we're either the only team or I think we're at this point, the only conference uh, or excuse me, SEC team that has not made it to Maui. You'd have to fact check me on that. If there's, if there is more, it's it's one more. Um, and so there is kind of some politics to it a little bit. Um, yeah. Some of the, you know, committee heads, like I think Bruce Pearl got in there with Auburn at, at one point. And so, you know, there's some politics to be played there. But, yeah, that's, um, you know, that's something that we, inside the program years ago when I worked for the team, we'd kind of joke about is how we had never been there and just kind of crossing our fingers that we got on that schedule one year has yet to happen yet though. From
2: an Ole Miss perspective, I hate to do this to you right off the bat, but I think there's probably a lot of Ole Miss fans out there who are sitting there thinking, looking at the roster, and it reminds me of that like scene in Major League where the where the construction workers are like, who are these fucking guys? Like who who is this? (laughs) Ole Miss has rebuilt their roster. They have a lot of high school guys, uh or I say a lot of high school guys. They signed a good high school class. They Hit the transfer portal, I would say, in a different way, maybe than most people were anticipating. I do think they have an impact player or two in there. This is a broad one, just to whatever way you want to take this. Kind of take me through this revamp roster, how you think they did it, and what to look for.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So looking at the roster um, this year, they I, I think they've got eight newcomers, four high school players, and four transfers as well. And so, you know, I think. Um, I really like the Amari Abram kid, top 20 or top 100 player. Um, he, and I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit more, but with Ruffin kind of banged up right now, he's going to have to play a huge role early for this team, um, especially at point guard. Now, when Ruffin gets back, I think that he's a guy that could be their third guard. So you could, you know, play him out on the wing as well. Um, he's got a really good like SEC build to him from a body frame standpoint already Um, and you know he played it's kind of hard to take some of that Bahamas stuff like really evaluate off that um, in August because hey the level of competition is lower the the one that's even the bigger variance to me is the scouting reports and how some of these teams were scouting them Um, but he's a guy that I'm a big fan of, he needs to get a little tighter with his handles. Um, he's a capable finisher, capable perimeter shooter, but over time in an SEC, you know, program has a chance to be a really good uh, four-year college player. And then, um, you know, another guy that I think um, is kind con- that has high upside potentially as well as Malik Ewan um, he's going to get thrown in the mix early For this group, um, he's a big – I think he's about 6'10". He's long, needs to get stronger. His issue is, in my head, he – we talk about how nowadays basketball is very positionless. In my head, he's kind of like a – what we used to call a power forward, Um, and he's going to get thrown in the mix a lot at, at, at the center spot with how this team's made up. So, for him, it's, hey, throw him in the mix early. He's got a decent upside to be a good college player, but he needs to get stronger. And then um, back to the basket offensively as well is an area that I think he can improve.
2: And that's something last year that I think was a real gripe or the years are running together. Now I think it was last year, maybe two years ago where Kermit signs this big high school class. And it was last year because really the only one that contributed was James White. And that was a lot by necessity. Now, I think James White showed some nice things, and I think he will grow into a larger role this year. Um, that's something that Kermit kind of alluded to in one of his preseason press conferences. But they 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 opted, I won't say away from the portal last year, but they didn't go as portal heavy, and they signed a couple high school kids that just weren't ready to contribute. And that team needed that, right? They, they, they had a couple injuries. You lose Ruffin for the year. You lose Joyner for parts of the year. And they just didn't have a lot of answers, particularly in the backcourt. And just from the way you view these newcomers, whether it be the high school ranks or the transfer portal, junior college, however you want to look at it, do you yeah. think they'll be better suited to that this year? Because in, you know, this is a dicey year for Kermit Davis, and we'll get into that in a little bit about like you know, job security expectation, what you need to do. You know, if he didn't have a high school kid, they signed four of them. That's a pretty good class. Like You would think one of them would need to play some kind of role immediately. That seems kind of important. And the two guys you just highlighted, I think, have a chance, particularly yep. Abram, uh, given Ole Miss's kind of lack of depth in the backcourt, maybe in the second unit point guard type of thing. It does seem kind of important that one of those guys plays a role on this team this year. Do you kind of agree with that line of thinking? Because Kermit said something to the effect of, like, this is the most depth we've had as a basketball team since I've been here. Look, no, no coach is going to get in front of a podium, and be like, you know, after five guys, we kind of suck. That's on us, but we'll see how it goes. But like, you know, how real do you think that is? How important do you think that is to kind of have one of their two of those high school guys contributed in some way immediately, given what happened last year?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it, I think it's super important. Um, and Abram was kind of a late signee or uh, a late commit at least. So that was important. But if you if you kind of take a step back, and what you're getting at here is, hey you've got this mix four and four of transfer portal and high school players as well. Um, I think they did some nice things in these eight guys that they signed. And there are some pieces to this puzzle from a depth standpoint that are going to help the two things that jump off the page uh, for me that I wish would have gotten addressed is, and this is, uh, this is probably something they tried to do, but didn't because there's 351 other schools recruiting, but, I, I wish they would have gotten another transfer guard yep. um, so that they could have a third guard. If you have Ruffin, Morrell, and then maybe a guy from, you know, the American who averaged 10 a game last year or something like that. Okay, got that's a pretty damn good backcourt. Um, and it takes the pressure off Ruffin as he kind of just slowly build him back. Um, the other piece is if you look at the roster from both the high school guys they signed The transfers they signed, and then like Breakfield and Robert Allen. You have a lot of guys that are what I said earlier the old school true power forward. But there's not that, um, there's not that Romello White, that true back to the basket center um, that that, that he's had really the past two years, he being Kermit. And so I think there's going to be a lot of guys that are going to have to get thrown into that center spot that are playing a little bit out of position. Um, Some of them may be undersized and that's why they're out of position. The others may be not skilled enough back to the basket to play uh, that position or both. And so, you know, the two things that I look at, Hey, there were some boxes checked this year. I do think in some areas they got deeper, um, you know, in in the portal and with the high school uh, with the high school players, but, the two things that I did not think got addressed is a third guard um, who can, you know, either, either create and or create for himself and or be a perimeter shooter. And then the second piece of that being that back to the basket center that they were able to with Brooks and Romello uh, the past two years, really get some good stuff out of.
2: Yeah. And that's an important piece of this. And that speaks to a lot of Kermit's roster building tactics. I think if there's probably a flaw and how Kermit has built this thing to this point is the fact that he hasn't really gotten an impact guard. He hasn't signed a guard um, that's kind of his guy that has really made an impact since he's been there. And in a lot of his teams at Middle Tennessee were built through the, the front court. He'd get a lot of the power yeah. forward types that we're talking about. I'm sure he had a couple of true centers mixed in there as well, and that's kind of how he built his team. But I think one of the harsh realities that – I think for Ole Miss fans, you would hope he had learned at this point, is that if you don't really have dynamic guard play in this league, it's hard to compete. And that's something we talked about a couple of times. And you mentioned some of the boxes checked. I think that probably is one, you know, somewhat left unchecked. Do they have enough? Yeah, probably if they stay pretty healthy. But I just wonder, like, did you view this and without trying to put you on the spot immediately, did you view this as him going back to, you know, his kind of old habits that don't necessarily work or did you just view it as the best available and this is who he got type of thing, if that makes any sense?
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, I think it was best available. I think they definitely knew that they needed to make a push at, um, a little bit more of the front court because there was, there was a point in time where I mean it was Malik Ewan and that, that was going to be it for this roster. Right. So they signed, uh, Imbala out of Buffalo. They signed Theo out of ULL. I'm not going to call them Louisiana. I just can't do it. Uh, <laughs> they call they signed McKinnis out of Jackson State. What's crazy is all three of those guys were defensive player of the year in their conference last year. All three of them were. So there's some there's some positives there as well. But going back to your point on, hey, the roster uh, build makeup. There is no problem with signing four or five guys or having four or five guys on your roster that have you know the frame or build of a power forward but if you're going to sign six seven guys one or two of them has to at least have some guard skills as well yeah. or be fully capable of guarding both the guards and bigs and there's a little bit of that in here but not it to the consistency needed.
2: And maybe some of it is the fact that you think you know um one of the high school guys or maybe abram is the guy that contributes immediately i mean, I think the way you've just outlined it he probably kind of has to to some degree i'm just curious i was just looking at this roster i watched the uh i didn't watch the exhibition game just a lot going on these days over here at the Rippi casa um i wanted to but i couldn't i couldn't make it happen miles burns the kid that they got from loyola not that loyola that you're thinking of um <laughs> Is not listed on the transfer piece of it, but he did play a decent bit of minutes in this exhibition. They brought him to the podium afterward. What 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 kind of scouting report? What do you know of him at all?
0: Yeah, he. So going back to non-positionless basketball, kind of is a your three-man small forward in my head. You know, I'll be honest with you. Um, just from, I I don't think he's a high major kid. Um, I, I don't think. Coming that from an he,
2: AI, NAIA program, by the way, for those out there listening, that's what I meant by not that Loyola. Go ahead.
0: Yeah, that's right. That's right. Loyola in New Orleans. So um, he came over and transferred over. And then um, his teammate at Loyola New Orleans, whose name's escaping my head, transferred to Marquette. Um, I just, I don't, I'm not sure that I've, you know, from watching him play, it's, I think it's too big of a jump for him to play a, a big role for this team.
2: Which is kind of crazy on a team that definitely needed to read to its roster, but actually getting into what they do have. Um, Kermit uh, kind of gave a little tidbit after the exhibition in his postgame presser that Jar, uh not Jarkel, excuse me, Ruffin had a little bit of a setback. Um, and that he will not be available on Monday night. And, you know, that's a pretty big red flag for this team because I think in terms of the, the backcourt, this team's calling card. And honest to God, if, if I was Kermit sitting in, you know, a defend my job type of situation last year, I'd have been like, look at what we had with Morrell and Ruffin playing together, Ruffin playing point guard, creating for Morrell before he got hurt. We had something there. That sets off a pretty big red flag, and that eats into your guard depth a little bit. It doesn't sound like it's a structural thing, like that he hasn't recovered from the um, the ACL injury he suffered at LSU last year. It sounded like he got banged up in a scrimmage or something, or at some point it may have happened in that exhibition. I'd have to go back and look. And that it's a minor one and that they're taking him out, like taking it him through this cautiously. But that's... That's significant, is it not? A guy coming off a knee injury, not going to be available opening night, that's a guy you think is going to fill it up a lot for you and provide a lot of your backcourt scoring.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, nobody knows the true status outside of the program. So they, I think Kermit said they're going to evaluate it week by week is the way that they put it, as like a bruised bone, um, so to speak. But look, you know, Ruffin, I think, when truly 100% healthy, he, he's an all-conference guy in my eyes. Um, what he was able to do, that I mean, even that LSU game that he got hurt, I mean, it was, it was super exciting watching him play. And he one thing that I think is um, super valuable with him that they did not have any of last year is he's able to create for others, right? He can beat people off the bounce. Um, He can straight line drive for his size. He uses the backboard really well uh, to protect blockers to finish. Um, And then, you know, he's kind of a volume guy from the perimeter as well at times. So, you know, for him, I think it kind of just all depends on for him. It all depends on like how, how long he's out. I mean, if this is just Alcorn state, Hey, boom, Florida Atlantic on Friday, good to go. You know, that's one thing, but you start getting into, you know, the Thanksgiving tournament where you've got Stanford game one on Thanksgiving night. And if you win it, you got Florida State the next game. You know, if it creeps into that, this could this could really, you know, impact your season um, a little bit. So, you know, fingers crossed things are good there. He's a really good kid. Um, one thing that was interesting to me, though, for Ruffin, and he's obviously making uh, this comeback from the January injury, but they put out a graphic that um, was the top two in all these kind of combine categories. So it would be like football's version of the 40. And one of them was the vertical jump. And so not sure who was number one on that list, but number two was Ruffin at 36 inches. And I remember watching him play some in high school and I would have thought he would have been in like the the low to mid 40s inch mm-hmm. vertical in high school. I don't know if they do a ton of that, um, you know, anymore, especially with COVID and stuff like that, the combine type stuff. So I wonder, um, you wonder if he's, he's lost a little bit of his bounce as well at, at 36, but that also could just be part of the recovery. And once he's fully recovered, he's back in the mix as well. So just kind of another thing that, was played out in my head to your point on the injury as well.
2: Well, that's another piece of this is you think about ACL injuries and, you know, it's not what it was a decade ago where it's like, Oh, this guy's out for a year and you hope he gets track right at, you know, 12, 13 months. I would say I'm not a doctor. But I would say, you know, that probably process has been expedited by about three months or so. And so you think, when did this happen? What, that LSU game was late January, early February, somewhere around there? That Uh, sounds right. And kind of the cruel part about that is Ruffin took over that basketball game um, before he got hurt and Ole Miss kind of just held on for dear life after the fact. And so you're kind of around that nine-tenth-month mark where you, one, would hope would be healthy, but I think it would probably be a little bit ambitious to – expect him to be 100% whether it's the bounce off the leg like you just said or just kind of his basketball sense um, even off the jump and so that's why I think this setback kind of makes it a little more impactful but I'll just kick it back to you in the form of a question I mean if he's out I don't think they're going to have a ton of trouble in their first couple of games you know there's sneaky little Chattanooga Mocs program in there snuck in in the first couple of games but who is going to play point guard for this team do
0: you think? Oh, I think it'll be uh, Amari for sure. I mean, I, I think that's who they're going to give him. I mean, if you told me he plays, you know, 30 minutes on um, against Alcorn State, I think I would buy it. So he's going to get thrown in early. And like I said, when Ruffin comes back, it it seems to me like it'll be either James White or him as their third guard. Um, James White, from a body makeup standpoint, has taken a step forward from a uh, productivity and skill standpoint, has taken a step forward. Um, the only thing I would say about him is he, he had some crazy big games in the Bahamas. And th- it goes back to my point earlier about the scouting. What I noticed is teams that were playing him, for whatever reason, were hard closing out on him like he was a 40% plus three-point shooter, like yeah. closing out on him like people you know would to Steph Curry or something. And that's not who he is. He, he, I think, he took a couple threes the whole weekend. So for him, I don't. I think James White's taking a step up. And if he's a, you know, a to game type guy this year, I'd, I'd probably buy it. But I think once the scouting report gets out on him a little bit, it's going to be completely different from the Bahamas, where people are hard closing out, and he's just going by them for an easy layup or a floater. Um, so Amari, I mean, he's going to be a guy that I, he's going to start at, at point, I would think. Uh, the first game with Ruffin out and when Ruffin returns healthy, he's still going to have a big role on this team. A as, you know, a combo guard, but B is your backup point.
2: And kind of along those lines, the other piece of it is Matthew Murrell. Um, You know, it was one of those things we talked about it through kind of the slog that was last season. It's like, when are you going to see it? When are you going to see it? And then it seemed like that point hit particularly early January And then it was unfortunate as the team kind of declined and fell off a cliff. He actually played some of his best basketball. It just doesn't seem like maybe everyone was around to see it. He's got potential to be a top four or five guard in this league. It's, kind of him being the guy, the offensive guy, particularly in the backcourt, do you think that will change how they utilize him? What do you kind of see his role as this year? I know that's a general question. Clearly he's going to score a bunch, and he's going to be the focal point of the offense. I just wonder if you think anything, kind of the way this team is constructed, will change how they use him on the offensive end of the floor.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think one thing, um, and obviously a Oxford kid, great player, great kid as well but I think Jarkel last year the ball got stuck in his hands sometimes and I think that that didn't help Morel out. Morel needed somebody last year who could kind of create for him um, and Morel's game last year was playing good when somebody could create for him A and then B was when he could get out early and get a bucket or two in transition for whatever for whatever reason from a mental psyche standpoint. When he got a bucket or two early in the game, it really helped him going forward. And so for uh, for Morel, hey, second team all uh, SEC preseason guy this year. You know, I think he's got some pro potential if he really maxes out. You know what he can do, and so I think for him, it's kind of consistency going forward. Um, but B, he's got to be able, if he's going to be a pro, he's got to be able to go create for himself as well. He's got to be able to straight line drive off defenders, get downhill and create for himself. Um, if he wants to get, if he wants his game to go to the next level.
2: And I talked to him a little bit about this in the summer for one of those NIL interviews that I did helping those Grove Collective guys get some stories up on the site is there anything significant to be played into the fact that he did stick with Ole Miss? Because that kid had other options and Ole Miss wasn't the most attractive program with all due respect um, to stick with that. Like, And I, I don't think this this current version of this team is an easy sell as an NCAA tournament team, but he just was kind of like, you know, Coach Davis recruited me. That's why I came to Ole Miss. Um, you know, I, I, it seems like Davis was – pretty involved in his recruitment I know a couple of the assistants they lost were kind of in that as well but that seemed like a big swinging point where it wasn't all a Ronnie Hamilton thing or something like that Whereas it's like you know wherever I go you go do you buy any significance in the fact that he did stick around through kind of the mess that was last season
0: yeah I mean absolutely and he there were teams that I know of that really wanted him I think that just about any team in the country would have taken him if he had jumped in the portal. So, I mean, I think it says a lot to your, to your point. I think that Kermit um, we always think about assistants being lead recruiters, but I think Kermit was super involved in his recruitment and he obviously sees, you know, a big picture here at Ole Miss, uh, he and both of his family. So I think that is an encouraging sign. And, you know, like I said earlier, if both Ruffin and Morrell are healthy um, and could be all-conference guys, then this team may have a chance to do something that we we all don't think is capable of doing or whatever the ceiling that we think is, is higher than what it really is if both of those guys can be all-conference players this year.
2: Front court-wise, if they don't have depth, something has gone terribly wrong. I mean, they, I mean, right. Yeah. Yeah. You had yeah, Theo Kuba. You got Brakefield. You have bodies there. You get Robert Allen back. And I guess we'll start at that standpoint. You know, a lot of the, particularly, I talked to Ruffin, I talked to Morell, and I talked to Brakefield and one other kid for those NIL stories. And they all pointed out, I know it was a big loss because Kermit mentioned it almost to the point of it becoming annoying last year. The loss of Robert Allen early in the year. And he wasn't a guy that had proved himself a ton from like a scoring standpoint. Or really a major minutes impact standpoint, just because of the trajectory of when he transferred, right? He had to, I think he sat out a year, then he comes in and kind of contributed sparingly. Maybe I have that timeline wrong. I can't remember. The point being was he was a captain on the team. He was clearly a huge defensive presence for that team. And you really never saw him blossom into whatever it was that team and what they're talking about thought he could be. Um, and I guess just kind of speak to that for a second is how big is his impact? It may not show up scoring wise, but it does seem like he has a great defensive and rebounding impact. And he's a pretty capable guy around the rim. He's not like a Romello white type or it's like, damn, this guy's yeah. really damn good where you get it from eight feet off the block or whatever the case may be, but getting him back healthy, how big of a component of that do you think it is to this team? And how much do you think it speaks to the fact that they continually harped on that last year that they did not have Robert Auer?
0: Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head, right? It's not really the talent piece that's um, the big deal. It's more of he plays super hard. He is a very good rebounder for his size. And those kinds of things that team needed at times last year. Um, basketball is a game of runs. When you go down six, you know, you go down on a six-0 run, eight-0 run and getting popped in the mouth, who's going to stop the bleeding? And he's a guy that I think kind of can keep that team together a little bit. I would not be shocked. Um, you know, Historically, we've seen him play a lot of the four. That's what he was recruited here for. That's what he played a lot at Sanford. I would not be shocked to see him get heavy minutes at both the four and the five this year with how the team is made up currently.
2: I uh, I just went back and looked at it. The other guy I talked to it was uh, Robert Allen himself. That's maybe why I was forgetting who the other guy was. He's a very interesting personality. He's a very personable guy. He's a guy who cares a lot. I asked him about his injury at some point in that interview and he almost got to the point of tears talking about how just how shitty it was and how bad it sucked about not only just not being out there, but having to go through the same process each and every day. And like, I know you weren't around him. You don't necessarily know the kid, but in college basketball, having that heart and soul guy who just, for the lack of a better phrase, just kind of has that give a shit level. Like how impactful is that on a college basketball team? It, it, it's when things it's go super... awry, you need someone there that does that
0: it's always been super important, but I honestly think in today's day and age with the transfer portal and stuff like that, it's, it's even more important. Um, if you think back, you know, 30, 40 years ago, like kids would have hometown teams that they grew up rooting for and wanting to go play at. And like, there's a component of that, that is, that's been lost through the years. And so having a guy that cares as much as he does, Um, is going to be super important, right? Hey, low, low ceiling from a talent standpoint, but for this team with eight new pieces with, you know, your most talented players, not being seniors being, uh, you know, Ruffin and Morrell and they're not like Morrell's not a super vocal guy. Anyway, it's super important. Yeah. It's super important to have somebody like that for, hey, stopping the bleeding on runs during games, but also, hey, when we're winning, he, there, there's vision, there's hope for going forward as well.
2: I'll just put you on the spot. Where does this club get its offense fully healthy?
0: Well, fully healthy, I mean, obviously it comes from – are you just talking in, in general or in the front court?
2: In general, I will just go in general. Yeah. Let's just say uh yeah. let's just say Ruffin is healthy four games in. Best case scenario, this team is fully intact. They go to whatever that tournament is where they're gonna play Stanford, etc. Where do they yeah. get this offense from? How does it look like? I guess to formulate that into a non general question, five minutes left to go in a game, you're down four and you absolutely need a basket. Where do they go and how does it happen?
0: Yeah, I think you I think you've let um what I would do is that I think last year they ran a lot of continuation sets um, which is in a in a way kind of like motion offense back in the 90s and 2000s um, it didn't look the same but a continuation in a in a sense and so for the team this year I think that they need to let uh, rough and play go play wide open in space like you've seen some of Bruce Pearl's guards do undersized guards do before in the past and then also, at times, too, instead of doing the dribble handoff, dribble weave offense, I would run quick hitters um, with whoever your center is having flat ball screens for morell. So when he's not going and creating on his own, having running flat ball screens for him to go get downhill and create um, for morell, and then you've got guys, you've got whoever set the screen rolling as well. So not trying not to get too technical into it, but – I think they did a little bit too much of continuation, in my opinion, last year, and the ball stuck on the wings a lot. It seemed more like they were trying to run the play just to run the play rather than execute a certain action. And I know when Ruffin has the ball in his hands, he's going to try to go make something happen. Um, He is obviously a super capable scorer, but also is a just really good creator as well. So they need to depend on him. Uh, second piece, Morrell, you know, needs to knock down shots and all that. But also, like we noted earlier, he needs to be able to create. And then between James White and Amari Abram, I think somebody's got to step up as their third guard there from an offensive standpoint. Um, and then, you know, you've got Breakfield and a few of these guys that are power forwards in my head. The the thing is with Breakfield. He shot a pretty good percentage from three-point last year, about 35 to 36%. His quantity wasn't super high because his it, he kind of winds up and his release takes him a little bit more time than a lot of these guards you see. And so another thing that you'd hope as well to kind of space out the floor is that Brakefield's jump shot's gotten quicker.
2: You just hit on something that I thought was an incredibly insightful point and what I was kind of going to get to as a build up off of that is it seems like that third guard does kind of come down to the Abram James White thing, because you. how many times did we see it last year where, you know, either Morrell wasn't having a very good night shooting the basketball or getting to the rim or they had a guy get in foul trouble or Joyner had to take a break or whatever the case may be. They would have stretches where it was like, oh, my God, they're going to go two media timeouts or a media timeout in a half without having a field goal. I mean, the fact that they continue to get fouled and get to the line at certain points kind of actually saved them. I mean, I, they won that LSU game. I don't know off the top of my head what the stat is, but if I'm not mistaken, they won that LSU game where they had like one or two field goals in the last seven to nine minutes of the game. And that happened a ton in losses yeah. as well. That seems like a crucial piece of this team is like, okay, who is that third guard? Because not only are they going to need a third guard to be competent and take care of the basketball in crucial possessions, you know, in the late first half, early second half, or even in crunch time sometimes, they're also going to need the guys to go score because that first and second option is not always going to work out in this league, and you're going to need to have that third option to kind of keep you afloat um, through stretches of games, and I thought that really, really hurt that team last year not having that.
0: Uh, yeah, I think it's a great point, and look, the, the other reason why it's super important to have this third guard offensively is you don't, you don't have the guy that you can go uh, throw the ball into in the post and play inside out with like you've had the past two years. Um, I think the Buffalo kid ha- has a shot. Um, he was very highly recruited by a couple SEC teams, but haven't been able to, you know, watch him a whole lot because I think he's been a little banged up as well. So I think he-, he has a shot, but between James White and Amari, somebody has got to step up and be that third guard. And hell, if both of them step up and are very capable SEC players, that would be huge for this team. I just don't see, you know, a scenario where you're getting a ton offensively at your four and pop spot this year.
2: And that's another piece of it, too, that I want to get to to add off of it is like, you know, you mentioned that when things all went. It's a shame that Romello White played during the COVID year because there were times that offense ran through him and he was a really invaluable player for Ole Miss despite the fact that no one could go to the games and that team wasn't that interesting to watch, despite being, you know, one of the first five, six teams out of the tournament, you beat that LSU team who knows what happens, but like, that's an interesting piece of it as well. But even when you have a guy like that, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, just from a general basketball sense, it takes way more to get that guy, the basketball in a position where he's going to be successful versus a guard creating a shot or hitting a jumper in someone's face or just shooting himself open type of thing, like that to me, to me kind of makes the guard piece invaluable. Because even if you have a guy that you think is a pretty decent scorer on the interior, does it not take a lot more to get him into a point to be successful? And like to, I guess to add on to that, the other piece you talked about, whether it was Brakefield or whomever else, having one of those front court guys being somewhat of a perimeter threat or a guy you can throw it to 17 feet from the basket, whether it be against a zone or whatever and kind of, you know, have two dribbles to make a play instead of being a back-to-the-basket guy. Like, that piece of it is important as well because a a strict back-to-the-basket guy, while it is valuable, takes a lot more to make happen on a possession-by-possession basis, particularly if everybody in the gym knows you're going there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Look, it's a a guards league, right? So, I mean, at the end of the day, having a, a third guy that either can create for himself or is a really good perimeter shooter, I mean, you know, with this roster, you've got a really – you would have a really good backcourt. So, I don't know. It's it's interesting. I kind of have to think about it, too, of like if I knew Ruffin and Morrell were going to be healthy this year and I could add either a fringe all-conference, you know, five-man or, um, you know, another really good guard, you know, what would you do? Um, because the, the counterpoint to it is when you can play – inside out and have somebody back to the basket it adds another dimension to your offense yeah. but also it, it opens up some of those perimeter shots because we would see with Romello a lot of times and you know he shot he back to the basket he was like 63 percent in back to the basket looks and so if you're a team guarding him you you either have to use another d- defender to dig on him or at times double him as well which just completely opens your offense up um so yeah, I mean it's a it's an interesting piece, right? This team, I I think it's more likely that they have somebody that emerges as a as kind of their third guard than their center for this year.
2: What do you make of this non-conference schedule? So Ole Miss is going to play four games at home: Alcorn State, yep. um, Florida Atlantic, Chattanooga, and UT Martin before they go to wherever that tournament is in Orlando. I say wherever, whatever it is in Orlando. I do know where Orlando is. You got Stanford. You got to play, potentially play Florida State or Siena, depending on when you win or lose. Optimal scenario is Ole Miss would play Florida State if they won. And then who knows what happens on Sunday. You got Memphis in there. You got a UCF club in there. And you got Temple. I think this was not from a reliable source. This was some fringe media guy um, that I ran into that I saw on Twitter. So I don't know if this is actually true. I think Kermit may have called this one of the best or the best non-conference schedule that they've had since they've been there. What do you make of the schedule? Where do you see – we'll start non-conference. Where do you see kind of the pitfalls potentially? And, key? you know, we talk about Ken Palm, Net, whatever the stats may are. What are those kind of games that are going to happen in December and November that you think might be important later in the year?
0: So I'll tell you, the, the game that I think is super important for them in non-conference is Stanford. And the reason why Stanford's like 58 um, on Ken Palm, it's a neutral site game. What I think is super important about it, and Ole Miss and Rod Barnes, A.K. Kermit area, whatever the case may be, has not done a fantastic job of winning these first games, um, you know, in these Thanksgiving tournaments. And if you win the first game, you go play Florida State, who I think is – probably top 25 this year they're not going to be elite this year but they'll be good so Ole Miss's non-conference strength of schedule is not just phenomenal um if you compare it to other SEC schools so what happens is you go beat Stanford hey you add another really good opponent to your non-conference strength of schedule it when it comes into a tournament there's no real pre-shot games right like this team needs to win as much as they can going into SEC play but having a top 25 Florida state team is super important. So that, that is a game in my mind. I think that that's a big one for Ole Miss is that Stanford game. Cause it opens up the next two games for their Orlando ESPN tournament. Um, the one that's kind of the one that I would say is maybe a trap game, so to speak, like Sanford was last year. And um, that one, when I saw it, <laughs> Two days before Christmas, and I think Bucky at Stanford's a hell of a coach. I kind of, I kind of knew, man. That's that's going to be a tough one. The tough one this year for me, in my opinion, is Florida Atlantic. Um, you know, okay. the day before the game, a football game. So Florida Atlantic is uh, top 100 Ken Palm. Uh, they're 89. I think they finish maybe third or fourth in the uh, in their conference this year in the Conference USA. Two of their three assistants have been on Ole Miss' staff in the past, so Todd Abernathy being one of them. And then their best player um, is a Mississippi guy, and he is a guy that, um, you know, there were some talks that he was going to hit the portal, and there were a lot of SEC teams that wanted him, and he probably would have been a fringe second-team all-SEC type guy So, I think, you know, Friday, November 11th, Florida Atlantic is a big one. And rough and being healthy and being able to play in that game, I think, is huge for them this week. That's interesting
2: you mentioned that because just without doing a lick of research, I'm sitting there thinking it might be Chattanooga. Because, you know, the Mocks have had a pretty decent program. Like, without diving too deep into the Chattanooga, you know, 12 met guy depth chart, are they going to be any good? Like, is that. Is that was that on your radar at all? Because the mocks have had a decent program in the last few years.
0: Um, they'll be they'll be okay. You know they lost Lamont Paris to South Carolina, and I think they had some guys transfer out as well. That has been a really good program. Um, they have uh, John Schulman, who is U- University of Alabama Huntsville's coach right now. He was there and had a really good run there, and then Will Wade came after him. Um, and I'm not sure if there was somebody else before Wade and Lamont Harris, but you've got Will Wade who goes to VCU and then LSU, and then Lamont who goes to you know South Carolina, so it's kind of got that Arkansas State football ish vibe yeah. to it from a feeder deal. I, I I think they've lost a little bit too much for that to be a real threat to Olmas this year. Their Ken Palm, like fringe top 150, if I remember correctly. Uh, but Florida Atlantic's definitely the one in my head that I'll, I'll be a little bit more tense for.
2: I thought you were going to say the second assistant of the FAU was Sergio Rucco, our guy, but I was reminded <laughs> that he's no longer there. He's not no longer there, excuse me. He was at like USF. I didn't know if he'd stayed in the Florida area. Uh, when I Googled our guy, Serge, it was a story about him confronting Jerry Stackhouse at Austin Fee. Which cracked me up from a couple of years ago. So you think that Florida Atlantic game is a big one? Just looking at it, I'm just going through it before we get to the conference piece of it. Is like Memphis. What what state are they in? How, how does that work? I mean, is uh, you know, I, I think the common person might be like, oh, Penny Hardaway's. You know, that team's not in jail. Like the the yeah the, the whole I say jail NCAA jail. That was not like what, a uh, yeah. Like what what do you make of Memphis this year? Because that's the other one that stands out. And then I guess the other one would be kind of UCF Temple. I don't know what they have in terms of either one of those, but those are the other three that stood out starting with Memphis.
0: Yeah, well, you know, Memphis, it's a really interesting deal because they got, in my opinion, let off the hook a little bit with this NCA stuff. Um, and what's super funny to me is, like, they're under an NCA violation. All right, they have Larry Brown on staff, in addition to Penny Hardaway. And then they have um, Cody Topper was one of their assistants, really bright X's and those guy. He left to go to LSU with McMahon, so they had to replace him. They backfill his spot with Frank Hay, who has been in NCAA trouble, <laughs> you know, in multiple times. And then they still, you know, kind of get let off the hook. So, I think, and you know, I think either right at that time, around that time, they get let off the hook, I think Penny got a contract extension. So, they're, you know, they kind of feel like they've got some of their baggage behind them. They've got a talented roster. Um, one thing that I think is underrated about Memphis's roster is I think they have four or five fifth years on their team. Um, they're a pretty old group. Um, only have one true freshman on their team. Um, so they're, they're an older group, and going up and playing – at Memphis is is always top. So, you know, that would be a hell of a win for Ole Miss, but that's gonna be a tough one to go get.
2: And on that note, just in terms I find Memphis fascinating. They were funny to, you know, shit on or whatever during all their struggles. But, you know, they talk about getting letting up the hook. You get the extension for um Penny. This is a different Memphis team. Like and they they're kind of capitalizing on some momentum last year. They seemed like a different team once they got rid of Imani Bates, and I don't want to be unfair to the kid, but that definitely seemed like a locker room issue last year. Um, I don't think that's necessarily yeah. a coincidence. Like, Do you think Penny and them have more success where it's not like, oh, my God, look at all these kids we pulled from AAU and all these five-star kids to where he can just, I say coach basketball, but just deal with a more mature group of kids?
0: Yeah, I, I think there's that piece to it. I think Imani Bates is uh, – um, I-, I think that is important that he wasn't that he's not on this roster from a locker room standpoint. I kind of like his staff a little bit more this year as well. Like Larry Brown, he uh, like had no business. And I know this sounds crazy with his resume, but he had no business being like in an assistant role for that team. Cause he's just done like he's he is old. He's done. I would watch him. I would text some of my coaching buddies about this. And like, if you would watch him during the game, he was the guy that would, like, yell foul or three seconds or whatever. Yeah. You know, like a parent fan up in the crowd. He did nothing from a scouting standpoint and was taking up one of their assistant spots. Rasheed Brooks – or Rasheed Brooks. Rasheed Wallace did nothing for them from a scouting standpoint. You could watch it when you watched them play. So now they have Frank Hath, who won pretty big at Missouri and were able to backfill two other solid assistants as well. So I think that they've got – um yeah, they stole one from Vanderbilt, I think. So they have been able to get a little bit, um, a little bit better of a college, you know, bench staff for going into this year that I think can help them out. Do I think they're a team that's going to make a super long run in the NCAA tournament? Don't know about that, but I think they're put together um, pretty nicely, and that you know this is an older bunch, and there's something to be said with experience. Let's you know look at Tennessee football right now there's something to be said for experience in the day and age that we live in.
2: Going into the conference piece of it, I'm not going to dive deep and go game by game in the conference schedule and waste everyone's time doing that. But like the, the it seems like for the sec, the top five in this league is going to be really damn good. Kentucky, Arkansas, whatever you make it, Alabama, I do think they'll probably be pretty competitive under Oates, Tennessee, and then the fifth one of there would be Auburn. And then after that, you got Florida new coach. You got, you know, another year of Gus, uh, I say Gus, Buzz there at Texas A&M, LSU when they get off probation in 2046, State with you know Chris Jans, Mizzou, and there's a bunch of new after that. It does seem like a top five league in the rest. How do you view this league and how strong it could potentially be?
0: Yeah, so I think you hit the nail on the head with your five um, that are kind of auto locks, and all five of those teams will finish you know top 25 in my opinion. Then you've got A&M um you know you in, in Florida and so those are the two other teams that I see as you know NCAA tournament shot maybe bubbly and then outside of that I think LSU Ole Miss State are kind of in a bucket um with themselves and LSU I I can't keep track of if they have been penalized with something as a program or not so far I'm not I'm not really sure. I know McMahon has something in his contract where if they get a two year penalty, he gets a contract extension of a year. And if it's a one year, he keeps his regular contract. It was between like this. a seven
2: or an eight year deal or a six and eight year yep. deal. I'll never forget. I was reading something. Our guy Brody Miller wrote and he, he said, it's a six year deal, but it's an eight year. If they get a postseason ban, and then just said, kind of spaced out and goes, so it's an eight year
0: deal. <laughs> yeah. So if, if you made me guess, they're going to get, they they would get a, a postseason ban this year. Um, I don't know about two years. There's a lot of stuff that's being kind of there that I've heard for a while. There's some stuff they're trying to debate on. And I kind of thought it was BS because Will Wade is Will Wade. And then Sankey came out and was super pissed about the whole process from an NCAA standpoint. So now I'm kind of wondering, like, you know, Sankey didn't. Do Ole Miss many favors with the NCA prob- you know probation stuff. It's but if he's lobby. coming out, yeah, if he's coming out and vocally saying stuff on the NCA piece for LSU, were there some things there um, that may not be as factual as as what the NCA was saying? Who knows, right? With that being said, though, McMahon had zero players on his roster at one point, um, with the exception of a walk on they are going to be like middle of the pack in the SEC this year. He got his three dudes from Murray to transfer, one of which is an all-conference guy. There's another guy who's a borderline all-conference guy, in my opinion. Adam Miller last year um, was on LSU's roster, but he was hurt. He was a transfer from Illinois who averaged like 10 a game as a freshman at Illinois. They got an NC State transfer who averaged like 10 a game, and then they signed a bunch of – you know, decent depth pieces, transfers as well. So, like, I was talking with Neil um, on hand-raised guys a couple of days ago, and, like, that's, that's like, the, my surprise team pick is actually LSU, who six months ago had zero players on their roster.
2: So, with that being in mind, and you mentioned it being kind of a 6 team league, and, look, this is a far cry from when you worked on staff um, where you, know, you guys had some years, and not necessarily, I guess it was getting better by the time you got around, but it wasn't the same that it was today. It's still not the same league, but it might not be the league that it was two years ago or whatever it was where it's like, damn, this team, 10 teams deep. Does that put more of an emphasis on the non-conference job? Because you very diplomatically stated earlier about – kermit rod barnes whomever not doing a good job of winning the neutral side games you know who did our guy ak when he got to that game like the second one in those preseason not preseason non-conference ones where it was like against whoever where they needed to get matched up with they didn't always win them but they got there more times than not do you think that puts any more of an emphasis on ole miss's non-conference slate at all
0: yeah i think that's a great point um on what the the, the league to non-conference feel. So in my opinion, I do not think the bottom of this, the league is very good this year. I think it's the weakest it's been in the past couple of years. If you look at spots, whatever that would be eight to 14. Um, wh- so there's two pieces of it to your point. Yes. You need to go take care of business and non-con really, if you could go into conference play with less than three um, losses or excuse me, three or less losses, from non con to SEC play, that'd be pretty nice. But the other piece of it is, I think I looked at their schedule and our SEC schedule the past three years, this one included, has been decently favorable. Omis has 10 games against teams 9 to 14 in the league yeah. that were picked 9 to 14 in the league. You've got to go take advantage of those. And you lose some of them and it's – you're not going to have the RPI or net bus like you would have had 10 years ago because nobody's going to be in the 200s, right? Everybody's kind of – Losing at a
2: South Carolina game that Marshall year, that type of thing.
0: Yeah, in state that year as well. Yeah. Really the vast majority of the team is in or of the league is in the top 100 and a, there's like two or three normally scattered in that kind of 100 to 130 range. So you're not going to have the bomb, the net or rpi bomb that you would have had in the past, but you can't you can't lose a lot of those games either. So that 10 game, you know, stretch of 9 to 14 or what whatever it is, you really have to go take advantage of that this year.
2: Let's just bounce. Actually, one more thing. Best case scenario for this team and worst case scenario. I won't make you go like worst immediately. Do you think this team can make the NCAA tournament?
0: So here's my thing. I think if you told me that both – if you told me that Morrell had a year where he was going to leave the program and get drafted and you told me Ruffin ended up, you know, first or second team all-conference and everybody stayed healthy. Maybe maybe there's a path there, right? Like if those two if you check those two boxes first, there's probably a path to the tournament. In my mind, I kind of see the more realistic best case if nothing crazy happened as more of like an NIT Final Four team. That's kind of what it looks it looks like in my head currently. And then a worst case, if you stay healthy as you know, one of these bottom four Wednesday night teams. In the tournament the the asterisk here is ruffin's health if he if week to week turns into you know him not coming back till december or there's just something with him because mentally he's a gamer he wants to be out there he's a tough kid but if there's something with his body from a durability piece to where he only plays 15 games again this year i mean yeah you know you could look at a four, five win in the league tight you know four you know, four and 14, five and 13 uh, tight team this year. So I think I mean uh, it sounded like a broken record here, but a lot of this group's uh, performance and success in my mind has to has to do with you know Deshaun Ruffin's uh, health going forward.
2: I think you nailed it with that in terms of what it comes down to if you had to describe this team in a sentence, what does it come down to? That's definitely it. And on that note, like, you dealt with this to the nth, nth degree that last year you were with AK, where it was like, make the NCAA tournament or things are changing. Fair, unfair, right, wrong, indifferent, whatever. That's not what this is, though, necessarily, right? Like, and the reason I ask that is, if they get off to a tough start in conference play or something, there won't be that, like... I mean, what, the Tyree three at the end of that A&M game where it goes down and out, that seemed like that kind of broke that team. That isn't necessarily this, but the pressure is on. Is that kind of an accurate way to describe it?
0: Yeah, I mean, look, is it tournament or bust? It's such a loaded question. In my opinion, and I'm saying this, me thinking the way that I think Keith would think, is if my best case, which was that NIT Final Four, if they went to the NFT Final Four and you have Morell and Ruffin back, I don't know that he cuts the cord on Kermit. Right. All right. That's one thing. Second thing, let's call a spade a spade here. What's the elephant in the room for Ole Miss Athletics right now? Kiffin? Kiffin. You go give him 11 a year, 10 a year, can you afford to – To to buy a coach out at your second biggest revenue at your second biggest expense program. No, no, I'm not, not, and and I'm not saying I'm not saying a when when I say this, this. I'm not saying a scenario where you win three or four conference games. I'm saying a scenario where you go win seven or eight conference games and are an IT team.
2: Right? No, I'm with you. I don't know the answer to that. Not an accounting guy. There's really no accounting to be done in this cartel that is college athletics, right? Yep. Like, like we don't know the answer to that, but it is a great point. And that will leave it down to like the gray area of like, well, you know, what actually is this? And that's, that's why I think being competitive is important. And I think you summed that up pretty well. Like it's not necessarily NCAA tournament or bust, but how close do you get to it? And I know fans don't yep. necessarily want to hear that, but it's like, it doesn't matter how it looks. This is a big optics year. And that's what I'm fascinated to see. That's uh, I mean, you're dead on with that. I, I don't know. I don't know if they, yep. I, I don't know if they can. And can.
0: And, and, and I'll build to this by saying, hey, that's not my opinion of how I think it should be done. Right. Oh, um, no, yeah. um it, that, I, I'm not saying it's my opinion that, hey, if he goes to the NIT and Kiffin gets 10 or 11, again, me thinking the way Keith thinks is how I'm trying to put this. All right, third way, me thinking the way that I think Keith would think about this. Got a decent high school recruiting class, okay? Now, is it going to be a top five recruiting class? No, but it's, it's a top 15 recruiting class in the country. And the Marshall kid out of Arkansas, I really, really like, all right? So that's the third point. The fourth point is um, I think you have to get a feel – Um, And there's a lot of stuff going on this Grove Collective right now. A lot of positive momentum. I think that the fan base the past week has done an awesome job with that. I think you also have to get a feel for, hey, um, from an NIL standpoint, do we, If and I think the Kiffin piece will be kind of parallel to this as well. If we fire Kermit, do we automatically get a bump? because people are excited about hiring a new person, just like in y'all's world as journalists, hey, y'all get more clicks, right? Like you never want to root for somebody to get fired, but there are more clicks when there is a coaching search, yeah. right? From an NIL standpoint, just like Kiffin the last week, almost people, let's call a spade a spade here, are a little nervous right now. We've seen a hike. Is there, you know, potential of, hey, if we move to – um wanting to get a new coach is there going to be a hike in our uh, collective or do we think that the current coach currently has some people that are involved in the collective that are maybe pro him just as much as they are pro the program and may not be supporting as much if we move to a new coach just things that i think people will have to think about um you know one thing i think that's really interesting though it, with this collective is you know, I think there is a chance that this thing is at five thousand plus members uh, by the end of the year. And if you look at it, um, if there are five thousand people given you know 75 uh, if you have five thousand people given 75 bucks a month and then you annualize that, that's about five million, okay? Let's just say that off that five million, I don't know the numbers and they're smart for not, in my opinion, they're smart for not uh, broadcasting this, but let's say they're given 85% of the money to football and 15% to basketball. That would give basketball somewhere between six and $800,000 in NIL, just off the collective, not including, you know, anything else that's going on from like a corporate standpoint. It's not a terrible place to be. Um, if you're building off of other things as well, which would probably get you to a million plus. So there's just a lot of moving parts when you're looking at the state of the program right now. But for Kermit, the best thing you can do is go win and get to the tournament and you'll it'll shut people up. You'll get a contract extension and people will start investing in this NIL even more, which is going to help you a lot Especially in the transfer portal, because unlike football, where you're competing against, you know, these G6 schools, in basketball, you can go take somebody from a low to mid-major team for a uh, for a decent amount of money because these low and mid-major teams have no NIL money. You just existent
2: You just one nailed it too, and beat me to my next question. That's why you're pretty damn good at this. Is like, right? Like they, they did sign up a lot of those kids for Grove Collective, but what does that actually mean? how much of that money is actually going to basketball? Like it's, it. I think the way you just outlined it from a math perspective is probably pretty fair. Right. And they're in a favorable position, but that is one thing I wondered going into this year, like, okay, they signed to these kids up, they're Grove collective athletes. What does that actually mean? And I'm curious. And I think this, this season will play a large role in that, not necessarily long-term make or break, but in terms of Kermit's future, I think it will. And so that was, uh, again, I don't have much to add to that. I think that was fascinating. Last thing before I let you get out of here, because I just enjoy chopping it up. Uh, Who's going to win this whole thing? Who do you like that's a favorite? What, what Kind of give me the grand scope of college basketball. Who do you like this year?
0: Yeah, I'll tell you this. I mean, look, North Carolina's going to be really damn good this year. We saw the way they were playing at the end of last year, and, you know, I'll, I'll hand-raise say it. I didn't know that Hubert could be the one to get it done, but what he did the past, I don't know, six weeks of their season – was really remarkable um I'll tell you this I think they're ranked maybe borderline top 10 but Arkansas I really like Arkansas I really like Tennessee both SEC schools Houston I think Kelvin Sampson thinks hey this could be this could be my year to go do it as well um and so you know that that's another one too so um those are a few teams that I really like, and Kentucky's going to be good. They've got, Kentucky's got a great blend of vets, and also um, some younger guys, like some freshman five stars. So Kentucky, uh, Kentucky's another one as well. And then, you know, outside of that, um, one that's going to be – that's not a blue blood, a really good program, that I think has a shot to make the final four would be uh, the Creighton Blue Jays, which is honestly probably one of my top two or three programs. Like, if you look at it, i watch them. If you look at outside of the Blue Bloods, the three teams that I probably watch the most are Ole Miss, Creighton, and UAB. Those are the three that I probably watch the most. And for whatever reason, my fourth has always been Alabama, and for some, like, for some reason, Alabama basketball gives me almost football vibes to it. And so it just, it's kind of entertaining because their basketball program is kind of relevant to what what we are from a football program standpoint.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. That's, uh, I don't know, that's fascinating. Is there a, so there is no like 2000 whatever Kentucky where it's like them versus anyone else. Do you think it's pretty wide open?
0: Yeah, I think it's super wide open this year. I think it's super wide open. And this is a year that I could see like a top ten team, a team outside of the top ten winning it all for sure. This has been
2: Bracken Ray Rippy Wrights basketball correspondent, former Andy Kennedy staffer. Always love chopping it up, my guy. We'll talk a ton more this year. I really appreciate it, my man.
0: All right, have a good one.
2: All right, that's our show. Appreciate Bracken's time. As always, we'll check in with him. Within with him i can't talk today throughout the uh basketball season is uh Ole Miss should be an interesting team at least for the start that's about all i got for you at this point but anyway um we'll be back uh midweek got a special guest uh played an impact in the old miss alabama game in 2014 and 2015 let you guess who that one is and uh some other good stuff coming down the pipe gonna talk to nick broker as well so y'all have a great start to your week we'll holler at you on wednesday